Welcome to all of you out there. It's the boys from Rotosaurus. We're back and we're bringing you the high stakes heat. I'm Jay Callisker. You can find me at the Dust Mite on Twitter. And alongside me is, uh, yeah, I don't have anything witty to say today. Dave McDonald, how you doing, buddy? It's never witty, Jake, but uh, you always give it a good a go. So I was kind of surprised that you don't never, have never. Uh, okay, that's, there might have been a time. There might have been a time. <laughs> I thought the Cleveland Guardians team doctor one was good. But I guess I don't have credit for that one. I got to give credit to Zach. I was going to say, you have to give so much context for that, though. Well, most people listening, I think, saw that. <laughs> it, it made the Maybe. rounds. That's fair. It, <laughs> it was it was uh, it was one of the most liked things on Twitter that week. <laughs> Where can they find you on Twitter, buddy? Speaking of it, uh, that would be at run D McD. Add that D. All right. Uh, we got another special guest for you guys tonight. We had Tommy on last week, which was a wonderful show, and we expect this one to be just as good, if not better. Joining us tonight is another one of the best fantasy baseball players today in the seasonal realm. Uh, a guy who's become bit, a bit of a specialist in the uh, the highest of NFBC stakes. So you're not going to see him as much at the draft table in your lower stakes leagues anymore. Let's look at his last five years, though. He is overall 34th on the all-time NFBC earnings list, and he has a number of notable league titles and caches in the last five seasons. So in the last five years, in 2017, came in third in the uh, Mike the Mouth Ultimate in New York City. Uh, so that's a $7,500 grand prize, second in the auction championship that year, and third overall in the entire contest. Third in the Las Vegas Ultimate Auction in 2018 with another seven and a half thousand grand uh, prize, and second in the uh, Las Vegas Diamond Auction that year, thirty-five thousand dollar prize for that one. First in the two thousand five hundred Super Auction that year, and third overall in the uh, contest as well. So two third overall finishes in the auction, uh, and that was a twenty k prize. And then first in the MTM Ultimate in New York City. Uh, uh, cashing in that league again, winning it this time for a 40K grand prize. So a massive 2018. And then in 2019, followed that up with second in the Las Vegas Ultimate, another $5,000 entry fee winning 20K grand prize. And first in his main event league in 2020, one of them winning 16th overall, placing 16th overall in the contest. Uh, you can find him at on Twitter at Beast. And let's cue the duck boats as the NFBC stud Jason DuPont parades onto the high stakes heat. Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. It's uh, an honor. Um, fans of your show already, and I know you guys are both uh, accomplished players as well. So, pleasure to talk baseball with you. Yeah, we're Great really to happy have to have you, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about your offseason process, Jason. Um, we're going to look at how the high stakes game a little bit more has changed since we started. We're going to get another perspective on that. We kind of talked about that with Jim Tomini last week. We want to get your perspective on that as well because you've been around for a heck of a long time, longer than Dave even in the uh, NFPC. And at the end of the show, we're going to talk about if we are in and in or out on some controversial players, uh, we're going to stick to like the top 50 and 80 piece. So we're going to talk about a lot of guys uh, that have been gotten a lot of debate on Twitter these days. Uh, so speaking of how long you've been in the NFBC, you have been here longer than Dave. You started playing back to, in 2005. So one year after the NFBC was formed in 04, you started uh, in the NFBC. What, what drew you to the contest? Yeah, I, I started playing uh, fantasy baseball in some aspects, very young, even high school, uh, mid 90s. This was pre uh, internet fantasy baseball. So you had to either <laughs> manually figure out the stats or send them away. I remember um, that that led to um, a game called Sandbox. This was uh, the first oh, yeah. online fantasy I played, and it was a lot of fun in college. We played that. And after college, that led to the Yahoo Sports Line type local league. So it used to have a very fun 
local live draft with, you know, some of my best friends. And that was a great time, but just happened to stumble upon. I think this story is pretty common. One of those fantasy magazines back in the day, advertising the uh, NFBC. And uh, between the fact that the draft was live in Las Vegas and it was higher stakes, you know, me and one of my best friends decided to uh, take a trip to Vegas and join. Uh, you know, we had tons of confidence that we were going to win the world and beat everybody. So uh, <laughs> we had no problem joining. And obviously, you know, it'll be my 17th year uh, next year. So I'm hooked. Sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah. I, re- Except I recall- went in a little heavier than you did, huh? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, unlike me, uh, who I just started with uh, the measly, uh, well, I think back then it was fourteen or $1,500 for the main event. You started with an ultimate league. So that was $5,000 even back then, right? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, I think like a lot of folks, if you're putting up that type of risk, you have a tremendous amount of confidence. So, you know, it doesn't always work out your way, but I truly don't look at this as an expense. I look at it as I send Greg a check and then he sends me some back at the end of the year, hopefully more than I sent them. And it, of course, doesn't always work that way. But I've been lucky enough where winnings from prior years have covered events. Not every year has been a plus, but, you know, I have done well over time. And I, you know, the main event is an incredible uh, contest, of course. Um, I'm not sure exactly why we picked the ultimate that year after that year actually did change and started doing a lot of main events. And now I've obviously changed up the games, which I know we'll get to as well. So you ended up doing the main event in 2006. And I noticed you, uh, like me, your first year, you also got third place uh, in your league. And then did you just kind of become hooked on it after that? Yeah, no, I was hooked on the main event for uh, a good amount of time uh, and enjoyed it. But as more games were offered um, and then more main event opportunities, you know, I always try to limit the amount of fab leagues I'm in. It was just a point where, you know, I wanted to enter multiple main events. I wanted to do multiple auctions. I wanted to do a super. I had to consolidate. And also I have a very consistent strategy that I take from draft to draft. So as much as I have the utmost respect for the main event, and I think it is the best overall contest you know, it's not something I'm doing right now. Um, and again, I think it's still a fantastic contest. I am very consistent, though. There is one thing you'll notice uh, looking at my track record is I only do 15 team leagues. Um, yeah. I want everything to be consistent and the same. I, I don't know. I have respect for people who can handle 12 and 15, but I just don't like the inconsistencies between both. And this just helps my prep and my process having the same types of events and the same type of strategy. Yeah, I tend I, to be locked up there. I agree. I, you know, we had a lot of people with best ball kind of blowing up this year. A lot of people jumping into best ball format now. And it's just, it's so different from five by five roto. Like you're, you're not drafting the same kind of guys, the same kind of teams. It's, you know, Phil talks about how he does all his best balls early and then he flips the switch and then starts doing the rotos. And I, I mean, that's, it's easier for him because he has a system to, to work off of. But for me, it's like doing twice the work and it's like, you know, doing all of that for best balls and then doing all and then stopping and then going to Roto and then doing all that. It's just, it's, it's too much for me. Um, that's just, I have a lot of, like you said, a lot of respect for people who can do that, but even like I do, I do 12s and I do 15s and uh, Yahoo is kind of its own format. It's 12s, but it's like super shallow 12. Um, I do those, but that's, that's about it. They're all five by five Roto. So I really just want to stick to what I, what I'm good at with that. I hear you. I'm, I'm the same way. I, uh, I did one OC last year just because of the bonus. You know, when you do the main, you, if you win the OC and the main overall in the, in the rare event that that happens, you get a 75 K bonus. So I figured I'd throw my one OC entry in there. It, it's just when everything else you do fab wise is 15 team league 
having having one OC or or even two just it 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 mucks up the works too much. And with my time management skills, you know, <laughs> I gotta I gotta make things a little easier. Of- I do I do twelve team fan tracks and. Yeah, I'm good with that. You know, the first come first serve waivers that I can kind of. Yeah, I was gonna say you don't have to do look fat. at at work during the week yeah. and that kind of stuff. And yeah, you don't have to sit there on Sunday and do two completely different sets of uh, of players. So we heard Jake say in the intro, "Cue the duck boats." For those of you who don't know, uh, Jason, well, I'd say the team name that you use the most, the name that you're you're known for, is "Cue the duck boats." You you use a few other names uh, as well, but uh, that's a Boston thing, right? Kind of like. Uh, their version of I'm going to Disney world, as I understand it. Uh, how'd you end up using that as your most common name team name? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. It is a Boston thing. As you know, we've been very spoiled the last uh, two decades, but with that being <laughs> said, I only care about four of those. I'm a baseball hundred percent Red Sox fan. It's my only sport, which I do think is an edge. Um, and I do feel for Yankee fans. There are thousands of 12 year olds in the tri-state area that have never seen a Yankees <laughs> parade. So I've been very fortunate to uh, have witnessed four. Uh, and I plan to be at many more. So yeah, it's just a saying when you win a championship, let's cue the duck boats. And, you know, I thought it fit in well with uh, my fandom of the Red Sox. Okay, cool. Um, makes sense. <laughs> when I saw it, I had no idea what it meant. And I was just like, in my mind, it's like such a, such a funny imagery of like cue the duck boats. All right, here they come. Yeah, I mean, I've ridden on a duck boat. I, I did that in Pittsburgh once, which was kind of cool. I didn't realize that it was a, like a whole thing about their championship parade and stuff like that. It is kind of a cool story, really. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is cool. I mean, they, the, the parade, they obviously take the duck boats around all the players. They drop in the uh, Charles river for a portion. It, they go down uh, the street. So it's a blast. And again, it's almost been comical how many times they've had to use those duck boats. They probably need an oil change before uh, next October. <laughs> so uh, speaking of, of your, your city, Boston, uh, we were talking with your, with our mutual friend, Rob Geese. And uh, he said, you have uh, you got some stories for us about Jake Westbrook, Coco Crisp and the 2007 ALCS. Yeah. Well, I thought because you guys are uh, Cleveland fans and I would right. say I have no problem with 29 teams, including Cleveland. There's only one team I dislike. So first off, thank you for knocking off the uh, Yankees as Jake yeah. uh, did remind yeah. me in the chat. Um, if you didn't beat them, we would have swept them, but uh, thank you. Um <laughs> My, my favorite part of that series, and I, I've certainly been spoiled to be at a lot of uh, memorable Red Sox games, but my favorite part of that series was a game I was not at, which was, if you remember, uh, and I'm sorry to bring it up, but the Red Sox were down three to one in that series. And before game five, Cleveland thought it was a good idea to have Josh Beckett's ex-girlfriend sing the national anthem before game five. Um, apparently, Although Beckett took it in stride and dominated, uh, the team really got ticked off and had sort of a private meeting outside of Beckett, and it really fired them up. And the next three games, the Red Sox won by a combined score of 30 to five (laughs) and won the series. And, you know, I was joking about Jake Westbrook because, you know, as you remember that year, you were loaded with, you know, arguably one of the best one-twos, CC, as well as Fausto Carmona. So the fact that game seven comes about, it's at Fenway, your back's against the wall and you have Jake Westbrook going. Um, We knew it was over. And, um, you know, that story obviously extended to Colorado. And I know that's outside of Cleveland, but I was fortunate enough to head out and see the clinch game where John Lester uh, pitched and won uh, game four. And obviously uh, he just retired having a great career. So uh, all good memories. As I said, I know I've been uh, spoiled 
Um, and I do root for Cleveland, you know, outside of playing the Red Sox. Um, I know we've gotten you a couple of times. Uh, we're not going to talk about 1999 and Pedro coming out of the bullpen injured with a back mm. and throwing six no hit innings, oh, but, um, we'll focus gross. on draft season. Yeah, here. I still remember that was painful. That yeah, was we painful. can talk about Mo Vaughn getting the MVP in 95 instead of Albert Bell. I mean, that was another joke. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what? You can have that one. <laughs> thank you guy goes 50 homers and 50 doubles and doesn't get the mvp that was gross. yeah that was pretty crazy i i and mean then, yeah sometimes i think these guys get penalized for being dicks i mean albert bell was <laughs> a dick and i, I think it's, it's kind of like barry bonds it's like how, how is this like how, how do you punish like some of the best players to play it's ridiculous i don't care that they're a dick or not you know you earn what you earn uh fausto carmona man that's oh. a name i have not heard in a long time you roberto hernandez well, that, that name has, was retired if you recall yeah Roberto Hernandez Heredia <laughs> is uh, is the new name for him. So now those guys, you know, despite how good they were in the regular season, man, in the postseason, CC and and Fausto were were just kind of mediocre. And then, you know, people remember CC for his Yankees tenure. He was a lot better there, uh, postseason wise. Just with the Indians, it was kind of lackluster. But I don't know. Yeah, and that was that was pretty much the end of Grady Sizemore too. Like right after 07, Grady Sizemore went on the downswing. Yeah, he really fell apart just of, kind of out of nowhere. I mean, just too many times running into the wall, I think. Yeah, he had like microfracture surgeries and things like that. Yeah, he was messed up. Uh, a little too well, aggressive. Do we do we want to talk about our ownership? Yeah, you, you have some thoughts about our, our ownership, which which kind of surprised me. But I mean, if you follow baseball, you know how terrible our owners are. Uh, do, do you have any comments you want to share with the audience about our ownership? <laughs> Yeah, again, it's as a baseball fan, it's, it's just disgusting to see, you know, the Dolan family has a higher net worth than John Henry. Um, and to waste, I think the saddest part of it is you guys wasted an era where you had Bieber, Bauer, Clevenger, Savali, Plesak, and Carrasco. You were so close. And, we're, you know, it's not as if I know Cleveland's not a large market. You're not going to have one of the highest payrolls. But if they would have just spent a little bit of money acquiring assets the last couple of years, you had a prime opportunity to win the World Series. You and I know towards the end of free agency, there's always these bargains, these one-year deals, like a C.J. Cron when he went to Colorado. Yep. It's, it, they, it didn't have to sign the mega contract to be competitive. And, you know, obviously this year, you know, basically handing the Braves the World Series by trading Eddie Rosario for Pablo Sandoval just to save a couple bucks is, is really gross. You know, Cleveland has great ballpark, great fans, great history. Um, you know, again, it's, it's sad that there's owners like that. And, you know, I'm picking on Cleveland. Certainly that's not the only bad owner out there. But, you know, I think the fans just deserve more. Absolutely. I, we're notorious for having bad ownership on our uh... – from the Dolans. I mean, what it's, it's going on. It's over 20 years now of this. I mean, cheapskate stuff the whole way. I mean, our biggest contract we've ever signed, I think is still Edwin. Did we sign Edwin on Carnacion to like a three or $60 million deal? I think that's like the biggest free agent deal we've ever signed for our team. When I don't remember signing we, for what 300 we Swish, million. What do we give? Swisher was five years, 55. Okay. That was the biggest at the time. Edwin yeah. surpassed that. Yeah. I mean that 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 trade, the the Rosario trade, it's just a microcosm of of the Dolans. It's what we do in general, like that's what we do. Like we're willing to give away good players who can help teams win a World Series for free, uh, just to save a couple bucks. And that's just stupid. Just just stupid. I mean, there's no way that they couldn't have gotten like some sort of player, uh, you know, minor league prospect or something in return. But they want to save more money. That's all it's about for them. I mean. We now have one of the lowest payrolls, and it's just like how how much how much lower can we really go here? Uh, yeah, 
I mean, hopefully we get that, that sale to go through soon. I mean, it's going to take a few years, but I, the bottom line is, well, speaking of the bottom line, the, the Dolans only care about that. I mean, yep. it, they know they can make money regardless. They can cry poor all they want. We know they're full of shit and yep. they, they make millions of dollars off this team and they're going to sell annoying. it. I mean, they bought it. They bought it in like 90, I don't remember what it was, 97, 96, something like that. They bought it for a couple hundred million. Now it's worth well over a billion. I mean, granted inflation. Yeah. But uh, I mean, they're, they're making tons of money off of this team regardless and, and they know it. So they're just going to keep it going. Just call it what it is. If you, if, if this is just a business to you, if you don't give a shit about winning, be honest about that. Don't tell us that you're actually trying to win. And then you do shit like this. Like it's very obvious that you're lying to us. So just enough of that. Yeah. They don't know how to hire people to hang signs on the side of their stadium either. They changed the signs when the, when the name changed, the logo changed. They hung the, the big one, the big marquee sign. They hung it off center. Everybody ragged oh. them on Twitter. Another one of them, yeah, they put on the side of the building, all the, all the anchors ripped out of the wall, and the whole, the whole thing fell down and exploded on the ground. I mean, it's just, it's a, just a comical, just total joke. Uh, one more anecdote question for you, Jason. You, you are, as we mentioned before, a frequent participant in the MTM New York City Ultimate Drafts. Mike the Mouth. He is a, a Twitter character and NFBC stalwart, though, in his own right. And you got to have an interesting story or two from those uh, $5,000 entry leagues. We, we know you won one of them in 2018. And by the way, you should deserve to win a prize just for being in a draft with Mike the Mouth. A live uh, one. <laughs> like that. Oh, God. It's excruciating to think about. Yeah, no, um, it happens to actually be my absolute uh, favorite. And it's funny because I prefer auctions over snake drafts. And this is a snake draft. I prefer Vegas drafts over New York drafts. And this is a New York draft. But Mike does make this draft incredibly fun. And I know you've all heard about the <laughs> yeah. uh, festivities. He goes, first bold. of all, yeah. it, it has a home league feel, which is amazing. Yeah. Unlike, you know, and again, I love all the NFBC leagues. I've been in some really cool ones, but this one really does. Um, you know, from the pre-festivities, he'll get celebrity draft facilitators. He gets Adam Ronis to, um, you know, monitor and do the draft yeah. itself. He always gets serious coordinated. So we sort of have a play-by-play -play with the draft and interviews. Um, you know, there's, there's a huge trophy uh, that Mike has put together, which you bring home if you win the league that year. So, you know, I would say, although there's stakes that are higher, that to me is, is the ultimate league for bragging rights. And we just have a lot of fun. It's, uh, it's very loud. It's very rowdy. There's lots of folks who continue to come back. And, you know, after the draft itself, um, you know, we typically all go out to eat. Mike may rent a limo bus. We'll go out to a steak restaurant and eat. So uh, it's absolutely one of the highlights of the year, that uh, particular draft. And if anyone has the opportunity to join it, if the Godfather lets you win, I would highly, highly recommend <laughs> it. Um, I, I laugh so much during that draft. There's, there's always a lot of great stories there and um, some great competitors as well. There's some of the best players on the uh, East Coast who consistently show up year over year there. Yeah, I remember you mentioned Sirius. Uh, that, that was when I first heard you. I heard you on the air. I believe it was in 2019, the year after you won. I feel like it was you were talking, or maybe it was 2018 after you drafted Mookie Betts, but that was the year Mookie Betts was going a little late. And is that is that the year that you won when you when you were doing that? That this is yeah, it's gone on gone on several times, but my favorite year was 2016, and I actually didn't win. Um, it was the first round, and this was Mookie's really second full full year, and his ADP was probably around 20 that year. So people liked him. He wasn't obviously hidden, but. I sat down at pick eight um, and I was truly prepared. I know, call me a homer, but I, I 
really felt he was the best player overall. I just wanted to sit as late as I was guaranteed to get him. But as soon as I took him, I was getting text messages from my friends saying, they are killing you on the radio right now, ripping you apart, <laughs> calling you a homer. So as soon as, you know, round 10 ends, I go We're quite familiar with that. I, uh, I looked over to the, the folks doing the radio show and I says, hey, I'm coming out. Let's talk. And, you know, looking back, it was very funny because, you know, I, I, I told them, you know, they were all about steamers, projections, blah, blah, blah. And I told them, you know, look, he's the superior player. Um, he's going to be the number one player in fantasy this year. And I, I believe he'll win the MVP. Well, he did finish number one overall fantasy player in 2016. Trout robbed his MVP in 16. Mookie won in 2018. So, you know, I ended up looking, uh, you know, it was the right call. And again, you know, people have right calls. I've had wrong calls before, but sure. it was a lot of fun. Uh, and, you know, and, and through the years, as I said, we've gotten on the radio uh, from time to time. But uh, that was probably my favorite. Yeah, in, uh, in 2020, I was saying Bieber was going to be a Cy Young. And I was like, <clears throat> I just want to, like you said, I want to take him the latest I can while still guaranteeing I get him. So I knew I needed like a pretty late first round pick to get him, but I didn't want to go to like 14 or 15. So I think I ended up at like maybe 11. You were 11. I think you yeah, were 11. I think it was 11. Um, and Jeff Erickson was at 12 and he almost took him, but went with Flaherty instead. So he fell to me and then he ended up winning the, the Cy Young. But like before that, everybody was just calling me a homer. You know, it's like, oh, well, you're a Cleveland fan. So obviously you love Beaver. It's like, no, man, like we're just more in tune with our team. It's it's not like there's guys that I dislike way more on the on Cleveland than other people do. You know, it's it's not just uh, I like all Cleveland players and I push them all up the draft board. Like you can't play at this level with those kind of biases. It just doesn't you, you can't. Yeah, no, same here. Um, it's funny, even during an auction, when a Red Sox player gets called out, everybody will just look at me expecting me <laughs> to bid. Um, and truly, I mean, I spend way too much time and have way too much pride to take players that I don't like for fantasy. I mean, I can differentiate between good players for the Red Sox and good fantasy players. So exactly. you better believe if I'm taking a Red Sox player, I believe in them. And you probably should copy me because I might know something that you don't about the player because I do feel I have an edge with the Red Sox players, just like you, Dave, with the Cleveland guys. So is there, uh, is there any Boston players that uh, you, you've taken a shine to this year? I, I actually, I love the prices on the Boston players. So um, literally over 50% of them are going to be uh, on my radar. Really? Um, you know, just some years that guys are priced well and guys are, uh, you know, deals. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll get to uh, even some of your uh, ADP questions towards the end. Uh, focuses sure. on one key pitcher. He's a left-hander. Um, but I, th I think the bats are all a bargain. I mean, with Boston, what you get is a dynamite lineup that produces tons of runs and RBIs. Right. So, you know, anyone that's going to be getting regular playing time in that lineup, you know, typically. But I, I do see some uh, some up and comers and breakout potential for some Red Sox. Bobby Dahlbeck is getting a yeah, lot, a lot of, of attention right now, a lot of attention for his second half gains. And, and rightfully so. I mean. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people are concerned that Tristan Casas is going to come up and take the job from him. I mean, that seems kind of silly to me. Like if he's producing, there's nothing to worry about. I mean, it's, it's either he, he's going to continue to do what he was doing or he won't, in which case he'll just be a, a flop anyhow. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you there. And I am uh, definitely fond of him. Uh, I don't think Casas is a risk. I mean, he's their first baseman of the future. Right. Red Sox have absolutely no reason to rush him. But, you know, you look at guys who hit the ball that hard as Dahlbeck, uh, special things can happen. I mean, look at Tyler O'Neill a couple of years ago, for example, showing up on all those exit velocity lists. 
So, you know, that's a slight adjustment away, I think, from a uh, full breakout. And, you know, I get it. He's got swing and miss in his game. And then people can point to at the end of the year he was sitting. That was a little bit different. Uh, they had Schwarber. You know, they were using Schwarber at first base as well. So, you know, offseason's not over. So, you know, we can certainly change our mind if they bring somebody in. But if he has a full run at first base, um, you know, I'm definitely going to be a fan of his in drafts. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think our group will be as well. Uh, we've also long been fans of Raphael Devers and Xander Bogarts. Uh, definitely two guys that are constantly on our radar. Yeah, yeah, very much yeah. So. Bogart, Bogarts is is always underpriced. You know, he is the boring, yeah. steady vet. Um, and I, I think you know where he goes is such a good buy. You know, early fourth yeah. round. Last year was third round. And you know, people forget last year with Bogarts, he played through a hand injury for about two to three months. It was amazing. He would swing and shake his hand. It, you, he was in so much pain and he never really missed time. He kept playing through it. If you look at his first half numbers, um, you know, he, he was an MVP candidate potentially. So, you know, I, I know he doesn't give you the, you know, 10 plus stolen bases. We're all looking for with those early picks, but I think Bogarts is an incredible buy and I don't see a big difference between him and the non-speed guys that go end of first, you know, early second, you know, I agree. Yep. Yeah. I mean, he's a four category stud. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you're getting better average with him than most guys and in going in the, in the first. Yeah. I'm yeah. I mean, he fits perfectly into my auction build. Like I mean, he's, he's just the ideal candidate for what I do or what I like to do anyway. Um, so Jason, let's, let's shift to your process since we started talking a little bit of nuts and bolts there. Uh, your process is a high stakes player. Do you, do you evaluate from the back to the front? Like we kind of do seeing what resources you can get late and then what you need to get early to kind of work with that. Or do you, do you have a, you, you do a lot of auctions. You said you prefer the auctions. Do you kind of have strict values that you use? Um, do you, I would do you eliminate guys too? Like Casey Cha. Sorry. I want to throw that in there too. Yeah, no, I do. And I know, uh, you know we're sort of calling that the KC Chaw strategy. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of folks do that. Yeah, um, we've been doing it for a long time. Right. As well. we, yeah. It just was kind of unheralded and unnamed. But yeah, yeah it's just it's just really yeah. the most famous player who does it. And we've all been doing it for probably longer than Casey has. It, exactly. And I think that strategy is absolute dynamite in auctions because you truly could walk in with the smallest and come home with everybody in a yeah. snake draft. I think you do have to evaluate everybody. You get sniped on a position. You're dealing with three guys at the end of a tier. You might take a guy that you like, but you don't love. Um, you know, I know in auctions, you know, all 23 guys I'm, I'm buying in an auction, I, 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 I speak, I think, uh, highly of. In a snake draft, you know, the majority of players are on my list, but there's always a couple of other players as well. Um, I would say in my process really starts with um, getting starting pitching. Uh, it creates the most anxiety. You know, I have to set my base for starting pitching. Um, and unfortunately, that's not a spot where the back end of the draft is, uh, it's really easy to find those gems. I mean, we all know that they come out of the woodworks every single year, but uh, my, my process is very based on getting the right pitching. Um, I don't do anything different than a lot of other players, but one, one spot is it all starts with last year. I actually start my rankings off of last year's rankings. I don't start fresh. I don't grab the ADP list. I don't steal someone's list. I put so much time and research into my rankings. I don't want to lose sight of all that research from so many years. You know, one of the very uh, interesting things about Phil's approach, and, you know, he does something that nobody can do with his Excel models, uh, regression models. 
is, you know, he really learned to learn to back test things and go back multiple, multiple years. You know, we right. focus so much on last year yep. and not the prior years. I know projections weight that in, but obviously more towards the current year. So I don't want to forget the guys that I really were onto a year ago, even if they flipped. So I start with last year's rankings and I tweak uh, from there. Um, also, this allows me again not to uh, you know overreact to the one-year pop-ups. I'm generally off of those folks that you know popped up last year as well. Um, I try to really get my work done, and you know I'm not fully prepared to draft today. I mean I, I feel like I'm you in know. a good spot, but there's obviously a couple months. But I try to get my own opinion down before the forecaster arrives. I, I hate to be influenced, and we can all act like yeah. it's it's our process and our process only. But you can't tell me that ADP and Twitter and the forecaster doesn't, you know, in some aspects, uh, change your thoughts. So I love to get my stuff done before that stuff comes out. Uh, and really just try to stick to my guns. I mean, I, as the draft gets very closer and, and one thing is I don't do a lot of off season drafts. Um, I actually just did one DC. I was just bored, wanted to draft, but plenty of years, like even my, some of my best years, my first draft was the super auction in New York. So, you know, I don't need to do off season drafts. They're a ton of fun, but Prepping for me in other ways is, is much more effective, but usually about 30 days prior to the draft is when I am honing on the players I want, my targets, and then creating obviously a draft strategy as well as an auction strategy. So I do create my own prices, but I am very flexible with that. I mean, it's just obviously a guide uh, in terms of what right. you're willing to pay. I mean, auctions throw you a curveball every single one. You can have the greatest plans in the world and then something happens. So you have to be flexible with that. And a big, big part of all of this is certainly um, risk management. Um, I am probably more conservative than most. I take very serious injury risks. Uh, rookies, I tend to stand clear of. I didn't always do that. I've learned, you know, mm -hmm. stashing a yep. prospect for months, forget mm -hmm. about it. Hype yep. prospects, I tend to stay away from. So, you know, I will miss out on the pop-up players like a Vladdy. Uh, don't get me wrong. We all loved Vladdy. We knew he was a great prospect. We knew he would be great. We just didn't right. know when. So yeah. I missed on those folks. But you know what? Over the time, I, I do. I feel like I come out ahead being a little more conservative on them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think when we were talking before the podcast, you said, uh, you know, you kind of watch from afar, but you're like, uh, you agree with uh, a lot of our injury risk assessment stuff. So it was good. To, it was good to hear that other people uh, share that perspective because it's worked for us for years, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can't, you can't avoid injuries anyway. Your lineup's going to be decimated, but to take someone draft day with a known risk of an injury, exactly. and it's all relative to where you're taking the player, of course, sure. meaning, you know, I'm talking about early picks, but I, I just can't yeah. do it. I would live with so much regret saying, why did I ignore this? And, you know, more times than not, you hear the little rumor and then it turns into something bigger. There's so many other players out there too. I don't understand the early rounds taking these players so early. Exactly. I mean, if you think of players as truly the statistics and numbers that they get, just move on, take someone else. So, um, you know, again, we'll all run into injuries and anything can happen, but I try to, you know, stand clear of uh, the ones that just seem to be a little bit more obvious or risky to me. Yeah. This Phil is showed Phil showed last year that, you don't, I mean, we, we're getting in our obligatory mentions of Phil DeSoe, but he, <laughs> he showed that you don't have to draft those guys to win. He didn't have Vlad. No. He didn't have Otani. He didn't have any of those guys that we would consider really risky in the beginning. I mean, he, he has his, his strategy and he sticks to it for the most part in the early rounds. He, he takes those guys late, you know, ones that his, his system highlights for him, but he's not going to make those kinds of gambles in the first round. You're not going to see him taking a Mondesi or anything like that. 
but this is exactly what we preach. And this is, you know, what, what often gets misconstrued from, from my risk assessment standpoint is it's not about taking zero risk. It's about taking logical risks. It's why take them early in the draft? Like you said, like, if you have a reason not to take someone, I'm looking for reasons not to take someone. I'm not, I'm, it seems like everybody wants to be like, well, I don't want to be out on this guy in case he's good. It's like, there's going to be other good players that you can pick. Why do you have to be in on every single good player? You don't have to be. If you find reasons not to draft them, don't draft them. Like, like you said, there's plenty of options that you shouldn't be trying to force something that isn't there. And you can take risks, take risks with your later picks, because when those don't work out, you're, you're not screwed. Like you can still replace them. You, why take those risks with your early picks? My other thing is, especially the last couple of years with COVID, I mean, you've got guys constantly going on the COVID IL. You don't want any extra risk on your rosters with a seven-man bench. I mean, you, you can't afford to stash all these guys. People don't understand. Like, I at one point last year in my Super League, I had literally 12 people, 12, hit, uh, 12 players on my team that were on the IL at one time. I mean, so I had to make some really difficult cuts because you can't take zeros. So, and that, and this is from a team that I was even trying to avoid risk. So, what, I mean, you know, other than getting Bellinger and Tatis with the two auto picks, but um, <laughs> that was a big problem for it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's all about avoiding those early risks because you're not going to lose just because you don't get the best player like let's say he stays healthy okay great you he would have been really really good but the guy you got instead was still probably really good and you can still take those risks later and that's where you really uh, that's where you take off and that's what that's what phil did i mean it was all his late picks that that turned out because he actually didn't even uh we were looking at like the first 10 picks of his drafts he didn't even make value on those first 10 picks those weren't value picks they were just picks that get by and like guys that hopefully would contribute and then the later picks are the ones that really broke out Those are the winners. Yeah. And again, I think uh, Gordon Gecko actually coined it on the um, Deadpool podcast, another great show, Rob DiPietro. I know he's a friend of the uh, show. He was on with Matt Modica and he essentially called it these profit centers late in the draft that he's looking for. And that's truly what wins it. You know, I try to break even in the first six rounds. You know, we talked to a guy like Bogarts. You know what you're going to get versus a, a Mondesi, for example. But last year, we all know, looking back, who had Robbie Ray, who had Logan Webb, who had Cedric Mullins, who had Carlos Rodon. The profit is massive in those players. And at the end of the day, when you look at the winners, usually it's the folks who had most of those players. And some of those players may appear as risky last year too, but they went late. I mean, look at Carlos Rodon. He's always been the biggest injury risk possible. But at the end of the day, if you take him and he fails, he was your 26th round pick. So yeah, that's, that's the way that, yeah, I think we're all on the same page there in terms of how we look at risk, but, and also, you know, the higher the stakes league, the more I'm into risk management. I mean, I don't have a problem in a DC taking a flyer on somebody, but you truly do have to look at the entry fee in the league you're in when taking this risk, because it's very easy in a mock draft to draft whomever you want and feel good about it. But when you put the money on the line, I think it's a little bit different. So um, you know, I, I know my, you know, again, I'm entering leagues that are pretty much all high stakes, but the platinum, right. for example, I probably have the most risk management, which maybe is a bad thing. So we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that was a good lead in, but I, before we do, I was just going to say like, yeah, I'm willing to take more risks if it's like a lower stakes, you know, say it's like a hundred dollar Yahoo league and I've got IL slots and stuff like that. Sure. I'll take a Jacob deGrom in the second, third round or something like that. That's fine. But like you said, you know, if you're playing a platinum draft and remind me, is that $10,000 entry fee? 
15. Right? 15. Okay. So you're spending $15,000 and you're going to throw down a pick who might not even play next year. I mean, that's, that's just, an, I, I can't get on board with that because it's not like you're not even trying to win an overall, you're trying to win a league. Now you can win without these, these high risk guys, but if you waste a pick on them, that just makes your job that much harder to win the league. And uh, granted, I know that, uh, you know, maybe you haven't had as much success in the platinum as your other leagues, but I don't, I don't know that that's the reason why, but uh, yeah. So you, you've played in that three times now, this $15,000 entry league, you've been unsuccessful so far with finishes at five, 12 and 14, but you're also one of the more consistent players. And I think that that's, that's what measures fantasy skill, right? It's, it's people who consistently cash consistently finish near the top of the league, it's not about one big win or something. It, what makes you a great player is being able to re- replicate that year over year. So what kind of challenges does the platinum present compared to other leagues? Uh, is, is, I mean, obviously you're going to be playing against some of the top players, but in my, in my experience, like playing in the super or even the ultimate, I, I don't, I don't see a massive difference between that and the main event, but maybe that's different compared to the platinum. So uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. And will you be coming back into that this year? And uh change your strategy at all? Yeah, I'll definitely be back uh, without a doubt. I think I was the first sign up for it and I'm not going to change my strategy. I believe my strategy works over time. Um, one of the challenges I do have with that draft and last year, by the way, um, you know, I look at that league and yes, I lost, I finished, I believe in fifth place. That one pays out four spots, by the way, which is nice, oh, just like mm-hmm. the diamonds. Okay. But I look at last year as I was one pick away. And sometimes that's it. You don't have to recreate the whole wheel you change. And I know we can all play this game in every draft, but you swap out one player for another player. And I'll give you my example. Luis Castillo was my ace in the second round. Swap him out for Walker Bueller or Woodruff. Things change quite a bit in terms of all the uh, the numbers. So I'm not going to revamp the wheel. But one of the challenges I have is that is towards the end of my draft schedule. So when I get to that draft, I've already done the super auction, the Mike the Mouth. I've done the ultimate auction in Vegas. So I get to that draft and I always don't take my favorite players at each position because I'm trying to diversify, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I almost wish in one aspect that that was my first draft. You know, it's it's last year I had my two favorite pitchers for ace level because I'm always not willing to pay the top, top, top freight for the number one or two. So I loved Woodruff first, Luis Castillo second. And it was almost a coin flip. So, you know, I grabbed Woodruff in my first league. I grabbed Castillo in my next. I grabbed Woodruff in my third. And I grabbed Castillo in the in my uh, last one. So, again, I look at last year as I was so close. And, um, you know, I think I just need to rethink, perhaps hold back a little bit on some of the earlier drafts and not, you know, go with my best guy. And, again, I'm not speaking of taking the same guy in round 22. I don't have a problem right. doing that. Right. I'm talking about your ace goes down in all the leagues. And, again, easy to, you know, dismiss that in a, you know, D.C. lower stakes league. But in the bigger leagues, you do have to diversify a little bit. So I got to think differently of that because that's where I should be getting my complete A list of players itself. Um, but with that being said, you know, I feel, uh, this is going to be my year. So I'm, I'm confident and I'll be back in that event. Uh, another spot there too, which, um, I don't know which way I stand on it, but in that league, what's very neat is you actually bid for your draft spots, which is very cool. So it's not traditional KDS. So one of the very dollars, right. With fab dollars. And it's so cool. What Greg usually gets is he'll rent out a suite 
um, at the Bellagio, for example, we'll all go up there like on Thursday night and, you know, it'll be going once, going twice around the room. So it's a lot of fun, you know, that little event. But, you know, at the beginning, I was just playing that very cheap saying, nope, I'll just spend $10 and go towards the back end. But then again, you know, you might not love the roster build there. Then the one year that I actually did pay up, I got Max Scherzer. I wanted to get the number one pitcher and he had a good year, but not a great year. He was a little bit down. So, um, you know, I think I'm just going to go with my favorite draft slot and pay whatever it costs there. Um, I would never do anything crazy, like spend three, four or $500. I mean, I'm talking something more moderate because I do believe, yeah. you, you know, how valuable that fab is, but I'm going to go in with my best shot of if, you know, if, if eight was my favorite pick or three or 10, I'm going to make sure I get that pick this year. So that's really the only thing I'm going to be do differently. Um, you know, beyond that. Um, my Achilles heel in 2021 was pitching. It just didn't come through. You know, when you don't land that ACE pitcher and give you the ACE numbers, it is so hard unless you get a free ACE, a Logan Webb, a, Ro- yeah. a Rodon, a Ray, or even right. last year, what I lacked is the mid-tier ACE. Joe Musgrove pitched like an ACE. And, you know, I didn't really have those players. So, um, you know, back to the drawing board, I'm pitching. That's the fun part of this game. It can be very humbling. So, um, yeah. You know, pitching tends to be my Achilles heel. When that goes right, my teams go right. You know, the offense, not to say I've mastered that, but I tend to be a lot more successful there. That and was you, my, you know, my bugaboo uh, last year. When, and I think we all, our group in general, struggled uh, with player analysis coming off of the short season going into 2021. Uh, you know, Phil's talked about how he used a lot of regression, looking at, and you mentioned looking at previous years. We didn't do that enough. You know, we, we put too much stock into 2020. Um, and you know, he, to be fair, he did tell me that, um, but you know, you gotta, sometimes some lessons you gotta learn yourself. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately I would say last year was probably personally my worst in the last several years in terms of, uh, player analysis. I was still able to win my, most of my leagues for other reasons, but player analysis wise, it was, it was a rough go of it. Yeah. All those, those mid tier aces, as you'd say, um, every one I drafted seemed to not work out last year. That, that was my main drag <clears throat> on the majority of teams I did. You know, I had Nola, I had Bauer, I had some, uh, even a couple Castillo. Nola, I mean, just yeah. everybody I took. I've never been into, Ca- I'm surprised you had Castillo. I've it was, it was early Castillo. and it was, uh, that was best ball. So I, that's okay. not, it's kind of a throwaway, but. Am I the only this, one who's so put off by his whip? Like I just never wanted yeah. that guy. As well, it was me. a, it was a, it was kind of a desperation mm-hmm. thing. And it was also well, fourth I heard, round back I heard then. Jason it was not, mentioned uh, him too. So I was like, oh, was I was before. kind of surprised that everybody's in <clears throat> Castillo, but me. Yeah. I, but- I'll tell you what aggravates me and maybe because I watch too much baseball, but this year when he would get pulled after getting rocked, he's laughing and giggling when he walks off the mound as if it doesn't even affect them. Meanwhile, you go look at your ratios and you just drop three points. Oh, so oh. yeah, he was very annoying. And I know he turned around in the second half, but it was quite frankly too late. I was frantic oh, trying yeah. to manage my team's throughout the year. And, you know, one thing I, I will bring up Dave, cause I, I heard your last show where I went wrong last year and let's be honest, it was a bizarre year coming off of 60 games, how we evaluated yeah. players. It was not normal, but I completely over-exaggerated innings. And I heard you talking about yeah. this as well. Yep. It's not that I didn't like pitchers, but I yep. was thinking, you know, players arms are going to fall off. There's going to be major shutdowns. Um, yep. So two prime examples and their aces of course is Julio Urias and Corbin Burns. Not that Freddie I didn't Peralta respect too, them. Right? Yeah, uh, Freddie Freddie Peralta think, but he went cheap a little later. Call, yeah, he went a little later, but Urias Urias was an incredible bargain. So right. you know, with that being said, shame on me. But you know, again, I just 
I should just go for the better innings and figure it out at the end if, if it falls off. So similar to you, Dave, I'm Big definitely going to change that and not be as timid. Um, you know, and, and, you know, we were always kind of thought of how many innings year over year can a pitcher naturally do. And last year, you know, pitchers went way above and Hey, maybe we see some ramifications injury wise of that this year, but that was definitely a mistake. Um, you know, how I treated pitchers uh, with innings. Yeah. Ditto. It was, it was a big lesson learned for sure. Um, a little impromptu question based on what you just said. Um, so since you have more difficulty, I mean, not difficulty, but you seem very sure of yourself with your offense, but less sure, I guess, with pitchers, does that lead you to kind of focus on getting your aces early because you have more confidence in your ability to add bats later or no? Yeah, absolutely. And this is the evolution as a player. And, you know, I look at my NFBC career, first half versus second half, the first half, everybody waited on pitching. It, yeah, it was hilarious how long we yeah. would wait. I, I have a funny story. Uh, one of my first drafts, I was a big Chandler disciple looking at skills. I think I waited till round 11 and you might say, wow, but it's even worse when I tell you I drafted Doug Davis as my ace, which was a complete <laughs> disaster on the Brewers. So times have changed quite a bit with pitchers, but this is, you know, where the adoption has to occur. I mean, you have to move up to the market. So, you know, I've learned you just can't fab pitchers. You can, but it's so hard, the failure rate. And offense is not like that. You can always find a guy to plug in for a week, for a Monday through Thursday, for two weeks, that's going to work. If you don't get pitching at the draft, you're dead as far as I'm concerned. So I have to walk away with pitching. So what that means is, yeah, I've increased my allotment in my auction towards pitching and, you know, in uh, snake drafts, I've taken pitchers earlier, certainly so. And I think the masses have, of course, I'm saying nothing unique here, but the old days, it was much easier to just wait and grab highly skilled pitchers. You know, the pitcher with the five ERA, but the expected ERA of, you know, three and a half, but everybody's onto those guys. We have a much smarter draft room now. Yeah, you, know, you, I, sound, you I, sound like an NFBC veteran right there, Jason. I mean, that, yeah, that's seriously. pretty much like when people hang around for a little while, they, they kind of start to come around to that to that philosophy you know phil was kind of new to the game and i think because he didn't come in with that like we kind of had that bias ingrained in us from playing nfbc for so long that we could wait on pitching or, or not even nfbc just just fancy baseball in general you know like you said it's been a whole shift in the in, in the whole industry like you used to it's kind of like we all kind of collectively agreed like oh yeah pitchers are just worth less so we're just gonna we're gonna wait and draft them later um and then when it started the push-up started happening you know like People who are new to this, like Phil, like, you know, Toby and guys like that, uh, they didn't have any problems just saying, yeah, let's take pitching early, you know, because they didn't have that. I feel like it's because partially because they didn't have that bias like like us, where we always thought that, yeah, you should you should wait on pitching. Now, you mentioned auctions, which are, are near and dear to my heart and that you prefer auctions to snakes. Is it because you feel like they fit your strengths better? Do you just kind of like being at the at the uh, auction table? You can make a plan and kind of execute that. What what draws you to auctions? Everything about it. I mean, the live experience of an auction itself. Um, I think there is some mastery of how you handle that, how you bid, what your volume is, your cadence. So I love the mental aspect of auctions, and that's a spot I think I'm actually very good at. Um, and outside of that, it's just control. You know, I, I mean, at the end of the day, you get the players that you want. So, you know, what I've noticed uh, is my auction teams are better. And a lot of that has to do with what we're talking about is pitching. You know, you, the, the later pitchers that you like, you can get, you know, we go into snake drafts saying, oh, I love all these starting pitchers in rounds 10 to 14. Yeah, good luck getting all of them, though. Everybody's on to them. They're all going to move up. 
uh-huh. in an auction, you can nail all of them. So I end up walking out of the auction and just feeling that, you know, I know we all love our teams when we walk out of a draft, but it really does feel like you don't have holes. You know, in snake drafts, I tend to play chicken. Oh, there's three catchers I like. Let's wait till two go, right? Yeah. And you always get burned there with uh, snake drafts. It doesn't always go the way you want to. Sometimes you have to make that panic pick because no one's going to come back around. So in an auction, you just know who's there and you know when you need to throw down an extra dollar or two. So, you know, again, Mike the Mouth is a very special league for everything I talked about. Platinum's a special league. But at the end of the day, you know, if those leagues didn't exist, I would do 100% auction. So I'm a big fan. And that's a spot that I, I think the NFBC people are really missing the boat. I know main event is so popular, but you got to sign up for a, a live um, auction. You know, we do so much research on players. Wouldn't it be nice to get whoever you want instead of leaving a draft saying, Oh, I didn't get any Vladdy or I didn't get whomever you can go get them in the auction. So uh, tons of fun, love the auctions. And uh, you know, speaking to an overall champion over here, Jake, I know uh, from afar, you've done very well. So I understand it's your favorite. Absolutely. Uh, I, you know, for, for the longest time, you know, I would, like I said, I was listening to Sirius. I was, that, that was the main intake that I had for fantasy baseball information, you know, audially. Uh, I didn't listen to podcasts back then. So the, the thing that I lived for, you know, back 2015, 2016, when you said you were on with, with bets was those labor auctions, the tout auctions, you know, I, I, I soaked that stuff up and I never played one. Uh, and, you know, I, every, every year I heard those and I'd say, man, I got to do this. Like, why am I not doing this? This, this is like right up my alley. This is, this appeals to me so much. I finally, you know, jumped into one in 2017, mediocre, mediocre team, but you know, I really enjoyed it. It, it. it was something that I learned from. And, you know, the next time I did an auction in NFBC, I won the whole thing. What, what got you into auction? Did you do them as a home league or did you start doing them in NFBC and just love them? Like what, what made you jump into them? Yeah, I actually was lucky enough to have a um, local league in Rhode Island that was an American League-only auction, so I had some experience there. Um, It didn't have the live auctioneer. We just went around the room bidding, so it wasn't the same thing. But again, I just think there's so much – to me, this game is so much fun. I know we play for stakes, we play for prestige, but the live drafts in particular – are so much fun and an auction is a live draft on steroids. So, you know, just, it's so much fun. And like I said, I I can't say, uh, you know, anything higher enough uh, regarding the auctions, but just the fun I have um, like a kid on Christmas. And again, the fact that I can truly get my targets, the quote unquote Casey Chalice, you can walk out of the auction and get all of your players. And I really love it towards the end of draft season where I've had a couple of drafts because I'll always walk into my last auction, which is the diamond and just say, Today's the day I'm getting Freddie Peralta. That was last year when I was walking down to myself. You know, I don't have him yet. I want him. I'm going to get him. Um, So just having that control. And, you know, otherwise, as I said, my Achilles heel is pitching. You know, I'm between KDS, which, again, is a good method to pick drafts. It's better than picking names out of a hat. But with KDS itself, I mean, you know, the pitching is really set up based on where your draft slot is. You know, if you're picking 15 or you're picking one, your top build with starting pitching, if you take them early, is going to look much different. So I would just rather have much control. I don't have to shop at the top, um, you know, price list for players. Uh, I'm risk averse anyway, so I don't always take $45, $50 players if I don't have to. So an yeah. auction fits me better from a risk management mm-hmm. perspective, too. Very good. Wow. Sounds very much like you, too. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much everything he's, he's said so far just is exactly what we've said and what we've, what we, what we practice. So it's, it's really good to hear that uh, another really good player uh, 
uh, does things the same way. You know, I've never, I've never done an auction in my life. Never, not even once. If if hearing that doesn't make you want to do one, I don't know what to tell you. Like if, if you love fantasy baseball and you've never done an auction, like I I sat there for years saying, I got to do this. I got to do this. Why am I not doing this? And I kicked myself when I finally did it. I was like, why the hell didn't I do this for so long? This is so I great. Think, like, I think you didn't do it because I didn't do them before. Like you, you followed I don't know. In my footsteps. And maybe you, it was, maybe it was draft. like my, my, you know, my bankroll wasn't huge. I, I was like, right, you know, true. I'm a, I'm a parochial school teacher. You know, I, I didn't have a ton of money. So I, you know, I, I budgeted money for the mains and I started doing that in 2013. And that kind of took a lot of my bankroll to do the main that I did and, a couple other larger satellites, but you know, once I finally did that, like there's no going back. Like it's what I look forward to. Like I'm, I'm already plotting my, my strategy for that one auction. It's the only one I do, but you know, it's, it's the league that I probably put the most time into and I enjoy it the most. It it really is the most fun. Like if you, if you, if you're thinking about it, just try it. I mean, I I know not everybody has 14,000 or 1400 to plunk down, but (laughs) I mean, if you got the money, and you want to decide between a main or an auction, first of all, your, your chances at the overall are a lot better in the auction championship because there are less teams. Yeah, it's but, way smaller. Uh, I mean, it's not as big of a prize, but your, your odds are better. Right. And second of all, like, it's a longer draft, so you get more money for your – or more bang for your buck. And it's just more fun. Like, you, you just – the banter's great. The breaks are great, you know, talking to everybody about, about strategy and, and people come to watch the auctions. Like they're actually a spectacle. So, you know, folks are getting to Vegas on Friday morning. They stop in the auction room that, you know, and, and, and say hi to everybody and check on what's going on. It's just, it's, it's so much fun. Uh, if you haven't done it, try it. I, 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 there's nothing else I can say. It's, it's truly an experience. They are also about twice as, they are also about twice as long as drafts though. Four and a half hours. It's about four and a half hours. Five hours. <laughs> who's who's in a rush though? I, I don't true. understand that. Yeah, exactly. You're paying I want that to last know, forever. It's well, fifteen hundred this year, so you got to get your in money. Vegas. You're in Vegas, man. There's other stuff to do too. You know. <laughs> yeah, not on Friday morning. You're still recovering from either your flight in or uh, Thursday night. You know. Uh huh. More likely Thursday auction. night. <laughs> For us, I mean, anyway. Yeah. 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 Um. So this, this is something that, that you've kind of evolved with, which I, I'm, I'm curious to hear about your answer for contest selection here. It, it's an important thing to consider. We know when you're investing the money that you are uh, and, you, and you're looking to get a positive return on your investment. I, I think the term contest selection was not really a thing in seasonal until DFS came along and people started talking to about it a lot. But it's, it's something that, like we were talking about the Casey Chow method, it's something people did. We just didn't put a name on it. Now, there's a name on it because people talk about it with DFS. So we talk about it with seasonal. Now um, you're looking to get a positive ROI. So you got to, you know, put your money in the best place that it, 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 for it to work for you. So it seems like you've been backing off the overall contests in recent years uh, with the exception of 2020, because we didn't have all those big giant high stakes leagues, the auctions or the, uh, you know, none of the auctions, the, the ultimates, the platinums, none of that stuff happened because we couldn't do that stuff in person. Um, was this a calculated change for you? I think you kind of alluded to the fact that it kind of was. You, you've you've backed off these overall contests to kind of put more of your your uh, your brain power and your focus into these uh, these higher stakes standalone leagues. Do you do you have any advice for new NFBC players on contest selection? Yeah, well, first off, I know you guys have said, but there's uh, a league for everybody here, you know, from all sizes yeah. and shapes. I know we're talking about higher stakes, but I mean, you you can enter $50 leagues up to the high stake ones we're talking about right now. 
Um, you know, again, I, I think the main event is the way to break into the NFBC. I truly do. I know other people will disagree and say 12 teams just because they're used to 12 teams. But I think everybody has to give the main event a um, shot. Um, and as I said, I, I, I love the main event. Um, I just can only handle so many fab leagues. If it wasn't for fab, I would draft every single live event New York and Vegas offered. <laughs> so it's, it's really not about, I, I do love, but I was always going to, you know, and I did the main event. And as I said, I did have a lot of success in the main event prior to when I was doing it, but it just came about, I'm not willing to give up these auctions. And if, you know, with the main event, I always would want several teams or a couple teams. So that's why I just moved away from it. But, you know, you brought it up in 2020 with the short season. That wasn't my original plan, but I had to move to it because it was really one of the only leagues there. Um, but my, my best advice for everybody is to get off the computer and get to a live event. Um, yeah. it, it, to me, it's actually easier to draft. And I know a lot of people will disagree. I don't know what everyone's process is, but I know what mine Rather than looking in a draft room for a player, I just want to yell him out. So I'm actually a better player in a live draft than I am <laughs> online. Yeah. I won't do online auctions. I mean, NFBC has the best software possible, but it's not the same thing. So, you know, if you go to a live event, you will be hooked. You'll join multiple events. And that's how it starts with folks. They just don't jump into XYZ League. They enter a league, they win, they enter a bigger league, you get hooked. Uh, and as I said, I, I don't look at this as an expense. I've given Greg money. He sends me money back. Sometimes <laughs> it's more, sometimes it's a little bit less. At the end of the day, you know, uh, it, it's a big risk, but truly it's coming from some good years in the past most of the yeah. time. And, you know, uh, you know, and again, I know I'm fortunate uh, to be able to say that, but, um, you know, that's the way that I look at things. So I, I don't have a perfect answer, except I would, if you're going to enter for the first time, just do a main event. But try to get to a live event because you're really missing it, missing out online. It's not the same thing. Absolutely. I, I, I feel the same way. I, I feel like I do draft better live. I'm able to, you know, part of it is Focus. me being in my home. Yeah, I, I have too many distractions in my home. I have an issue with that. Um, you have so a lot of being able being able to isolate myself at the draft table with just one person in my ear uh, really helps me out. I, I and, or three. And hear, hearing the cadence of the auctioneer that I mean, like you mentioned the online auctions. I, I tried a couple of those in, in 2020 uh, back before everything shut down for a while. And I just, yeah, it, it's, it's not the same experience. Now you talk to Zach Waxman, he'll probably tell you the opposite because he excelled in that format. I, I just, I didn't find it was for me. Maybe I need to give it a couple more shots. We'll see. But uh, yeah. The it, online enough, auction enough, you said? Yeah. The online ones. Yeah. No, I, helped Marcus with one. It was the most frustrating experience of my life. And it wasn't no. my team. It was horrible. I'm telling you. You did was, one with me too. You were on horrendous. Zoom with me. Do you remember in 2020? You probably remember. I that. probably blocked it out because it was yeah. it was so terrible. I hated it. And it like, hard. I, I think I would love to do a live auction, but online it's super difficult to keep up with. Um, I'm not a fan. So, I mean, maybe some people can do that. I don't, I don't know. It's just, it moves very it's fast. Not for, it's not yeah. for me. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, you, you definitely are better uh, live. I mean, look, where else are you going to have drunk Nemi rolling on around on the floor while you're trying to draft uh, other than live in Vegas? I mean, yes, we have our know, mascot that's... in Vegas, but he's the only <laughs> distraction. really. It is. It is a bit of a distraction. I so limit Jay... the alcoholic intake until the drafts are over. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I drink during the draft. It kind of helps me, I think. But uh, Jason, I, I had a thought this off season and uh, I was going to talk to Derek butcher about it later. Um, what would you think about having different time slots for fab? Like where they, they don't all process at 10, 
like different leagues. Obviously, like the main event would all the leagues would have to process at the same time. So everybody's on the same playing field. But what if we had leagues like, you know, the super, the ultimate, the platinum like process at, you know, nine o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, stuff like that. Like you could join more leagues if the fab wasn't all due on them at the exact same hour for me. Anyways, that would, I would definitely be able to do more fab leagues were that the case. It's an interesting idea for sure. Um, someone like myself um, is such a slave to the computer that day and the process though, I feel like that almost makes it worse. Um, I don't think there's a perfect answer here as well. I mean, back in the day, you guys remember it was 8 p.m. Eastern time, the deadline. Yeah, Obviously, yeah. West Coast people yeah, complained. So, yeah, again, it's and, and part of me, you know, at the beginning of the year, I, I enjoy fab. It can be fun, but it can certainly be a grind. It's nowhere near <laughs> as fun as the uh, live drafts, but it's so critical. I mean, you can't give up one week in fab. I truly feel yeah. you skip one week, you're on one vacation, and it can really just totally throw your season. So it's that impactful, but I, again, I like it at one time and ending. Cause otherwise I'd be, if you wanted to scale it, I'd be starting even earlier in the day for that first, you know, lock deadline. So I prefer it all at one time. And uh, I know football does it two days because there's different games, but yeah. I, there's not a great day for people. So you might as well stick with Sunday and throw it late. So, you know, I've learned to almost embrace it, although it's not my favorite part about fantasy baseball. I feel now, like the you, major the major argument against that, though, I mean, if you have leagues of that import at different times, you know, the stuff that happens in the main event fab is going to affect the stuff that happens in the, you know, the platinum league at 11. If that's when it runs there it is, if that stuff, even if it's not public, people can still be in leagues with other people that are in those leagues, see what they bid. I, I don't see any way that that would fly with a large portion of the community playing the highest stakes personally, that that's just, that would be my caveat to that idea. Yeah. Because you can see the other yeah. stuff first. I mean, mean, even, you know, we, we, in our Glarf chat last year, you know, the, the TGFBI bidding it, multiple people in our Glarf league said they, they analyzed what we did in the TGFBI bidding, or they looked at TGFBI bidding and then they altered what they were doing in Glarf based on that. So I, I think that'll be way too uh, prevalent. I, I don't think any way they'd be able to do it personally. Okay. All right. Fair enough. I don't know. I just personally, I just can't do it all at the same it, time. It certainly but, would make things a little easier for me, but <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> or at least have it pushed back. I don't know. Like I, I know 10 o'clock probably seems plenty late for people, but for me, I, I would like, if it could be 1am, that would be amazing. That's, would, that's getting pretty late on a work night for East coasters though. <laughs> There's a lot of people that would have well, a you problem. You can go to bed earlier. I mean, you know, you can set it at 10 and just leave, but you then know? you don't know what happens until you wake up. But yeah, I, yeah, I hear that. So, yeah, easy for you to say, leave it behind. I'm, I'm working right up until that buzzer. We've all oh, seen, yeah. the, know. The, you know, <laughs> know, the new relief pitcher come out of the bullpen at 9.30 yeah, right. on ESPN. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. you got to have your eyeballs until it stops. I feel for people <laughs> who don't have that opportunity uh, with time. But and, and also there's work after fab. I, I like to set all my lineups after fab and evaluate. And, you know, the one spot, again, kudos to the NFBC is how much they've sped up that fab time. Wasn't always like that. You know, we did oh, refresh, yeah. refresh. And the <laughs> oh, yeah. fab now, it's literally within minutes is an yeah. absolute blessing for us East Coasters. So, you know, from that aspect, it, uh, it works well. And I totally get the whole West Coast thing. I mean, if it was eight, like it used to be in 5 p.m. their time, that's really not fair as well. Yeah. So. You know, there's a reason the NFBC keeps growing. They've learned to yeah. adopt they rules have. that work for the masses. That's for sure. I mean, that's one thing they do well is they listen. They they might be a little reticent to, to make the change, but they will listen. Yeah. I mean, and that's a testament to how much they've grown 
they've expanded their offerings. You know, they, you know, moving to sports hub was, was a major thing for them. Like when they finally found that home where they didn't have to keep bouncing around and searching for somebody new to pick them up every couple of years, man, there've been so many advances these last few years. Now they've been with sports hub. It, it, it's the best thing that happened to the, I mean, honestly, to, to the seasonal fantasy baseball industry. I mean, it, it NFBC being at sports hub, I think has done so much to grow the seasonal baseball community. Cause I mean, just four, three, four years ago, we were talking about how seasonal fantasy was dying. And now you don't hear anybody talking about that shit anymore. And it's because NFBC has just exploded. I mean, they they've put so much into their product and it's just taken off and they keep evolving. I mean, the best balls and the DCs have really taken off. Yeah. Yeah. Everything that people do, you know, at other sites, they they've seen it, they've listened to it, they've adapted to it and they've implemented a lot of it. If it I mean, works. customer customer services is why NFBC is as success, successful as it is. I mean, they take a higher rate than any other company, but because of all the th- the work that they put into it and the the live drafts that they and put the events on, are all amazing. That, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Like there, it's 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 worth it. And the people who only play online don't really get to see that that uh, the reason for that, you know, which is the live events and everything. But even outside of that, everything that they do and anything that goes wrong. You know, you can always get in contact with them. It's it's very easy, you know, compared to other companies that feel like they don't give a shit. Yeah. Should we cut that and send it to Derek Butcher? <laughs> uh, Jason, who's who would you say is the best player that you've played against in any of the the highest stakes leagues that you've done? Yeah, really tough question. I have so much respect. There's so many great players, but I tend to look at it. And I think the comment was earlier. I'm not looking at the overall winnings. I know that's a big deal at the end of the day, uh, popping overalls, winning the big check, but I'm looking for consistency year over year. And, you know, I've actually told this individual uh, in person that he's the best. And uh, I would go with Mark Shrebro, Gecko. Um, he's been around as long as anyone. So he has a longer track record versus a lot of the great players we've mentioned even today. And he's just consistently ferocious near the top of each and every league. Um, so I, I would go with Mark Trebo, the ultimate competitor. Uh, with that being said, you know, I, I would say uh, next in line, Casey Shaw, you know, absolutely incredible. Once again, consistency year over year, which is what I'm looking at. Might not hit the overall every year, but right near the top, bunch of teams that are competitive. And last but not least, if Vegas had main event odds, uh, to win the main event, I would put my money on Brian Slack and Nick Sackett. Those yep. guys are monsters, silent assassins, um, nicest guys in the world. Always. I mean, they have so many top 10 finishes. They crush the DC format, crush the main event. Really, really, really sharp players. Uh, and once again, you know, I know there's other great players uh, that I left out of that equation. Um, you know, Phil, he did something that no one will ever do. It's just, it's only been a couple of years he's been playing with all due respect. So, you know, I I think he's going to have another great year. I don't think he'll necessarily duplicate it. I know he'll tell you that as well, but I just, you know, Mark Shrebro has been around since 2004. So, you know, that's where I would uh, stick my list that uh, Gecko would be currently number one, but boy, is that list tough. And uh, you know, there's people gunning for you. Those are, those are three great picks. And Mark Shrebro was, uh, uh, I think we, I think we've played against each other twice. I think once a long time ago, the first time I ever did a super league, uh, I got second place. I don't know where he finished. Uh, it wasn't first. So I guess I finished ahead of him, but I mean, like you said, it's few and far between that he doesn't winning or cashing in a league. And last year he was in my, 
uh, main event league and he got first and we got third. So definitely got the better of me last year. Um, I was looking at your uh, Jason. I was looking at your breakdown of your historical record and I look, just look back at mine just for fun. And I looked back at my first league and I realized that Cerebro was in my very first league in 2010. It was like a slow draft, just a random satellite back before DCs when people were doing them on mock draft central. And then they were uploading the the rosters to NFBC, but he won that league as well. That was, that was the only league I did NFBC that year. And it turns out that, and I remember Dave, when I signed up for that league, you said that that's the guy you got to look out for. That's the really good guy. Yeah. Even back then in 2010, I mean, the dude oh, yeah. dude's as consistent as it gets and, you know, don't want to stroke his ego too much on the air, <laughs> but uh, he, uh, he really is one of the most consistent players out there. So it's, it's certainly a, a high end pick for sure. Uh, you know, what I, you know what I miss with uh, Gecko. I don't know if you remember on old message board days is he used to do the uh, rev the fab engines and he would oh, yeah. put some uh, yeah. information yeah. out and he was obviously <laughs> joking and kidding, yeah. but it was amazing how much pull he had from afar. <laughs> I loved it because I'm not going to be influenced by it, but you better believe that there was always an influ- oh, yeah. influence oh, on yeah. whoever he was. And now he does about. it on Twitter. That's what he does on Twitter now. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so Jake just sent me something like yesterday, like, Oh God, here we go again. Look what Cerebro's putting out there now. <laughs> it's like, how many people are going to fall for this one? Okay. <laughs> hey, there is so much influence on Twitter though, guys. And, and I, I actually like this because I like to think that it doesn't influence me. I mean, I even saw uh, Vlad today tweeted a player, a great player taking the 50th round of a DC. And then sure enough, 48th yep. round yep. of my DC, yep. someone yep. took him. So, you know, you'd be surprised, but I think the smart players pay attention to that because we know where the trends are going. You know, I don't get surprised a lot in these leagues, you know, you know, certain players are pumping certain players and you just see them moving, you know, uh, Maddie Wood and Vlad, great podcast. They have uh, spoke yep. very glowingly of Dylan Cease. Guess where he's moving, moving on up. Oh, yeah. Another one I will point out that I just heard, and I want this guy to go early because I want nothing to do with him, but the uh, Bubber and Black Batflip show uh, Batflip was making the argument, why take Joe Musgrove when you can take Jordan Montgomery 100 picks later? So pay up for Jordan Montgomery. I'm going to call him up first in auctions, <laughs> especially to Yankee fans. Uh, we're getting a Joe Musgrove comp on that. So I-, I-, I love that stuff because I do know these are very smart people. I mean, they're very honest. Vlad's honest in his takes and mm-hmm. uh, Bubba and Batflip. I certainly believe them. They're sticking by their guns, but people copy them. Um, you know, it, it happens. I-, I saw years ago, I'll never forget. I don't know if you remember. Uh, I was on the train to New York to draft, and it, it someone uh, mentioned that Lindy had just taken Starlin Marte in like the yeah. first round. Yeah. yeah. And it was amazing to see all the drafts after how he kept moving up and kept moving up. So those top players are being watched, which I find it fascinating with Phil this year um, to see people try to march in his parade. He's too oh, smart yeah. to uh, allow that to happen, I'm sure. But everybody wants to know who his Robbie Ray is this year. So uh, that stuff's cool. And like I said, I, I think, uh, you know, you don't want to be a sheep and just necessarily follow. You want to do your due diligence. But you'd be crazy to think that there is not an influence with that stuff. Oh, no, there definitely is. And, it, and it's funny because like the Robbie Ray pick, you know, Phil, Phil never thought that that was going to happen. It was because, you know, him and I talk a lot. And it was just like, look, you can depend on Robbie Ray for strikeouts and he's on a team with a really good offense. So he's got a good shot at wins. It's like, what can you depend on when it comes to pitchers strikeouts, you know, when like guys strikeouts year to year are pretty stable, you know, you can't predict wins. ERA is somewhat random. Whip is pretty consistent. Like you can usually count on that, but he had also 
changed his mechanics. So there's always the chance that he did what he did. And so for Phil, it's like, look, I'm, I'm taking a late pick. I'm getting a guy who I know I'm going to get strikeouts from. Maybe I'll get some wins. You know, he didn't see this, you know, Cy Young type season coming, but you know, that's, that's, it's just a good process of, of how you look at guys. So um, yeah, absolutely. Everybody's trying to figure out who he's got coming, but he's also drafting all these best balls and he drafts best balls very differently than he drafts, uh, you know, his five by five roto teams, but people like are, are thinking that just because he's on someone in a best ball draft that he's going to be on them in roto and he's not necessarily. So it's definitely going to be interesting to see how much uh, people overreact to his picks. Um, and you, you kind of mentioned, you know, following people on Twitter and having a good feel for the market, seeing these guys rise, you know, I'm so thankful for Twitter for that because before, you know, we would go to Vegas and, and like, it would catch us by surprise. We'd be like, wait, why is that guy going like 70 picks higher than his men pick uh, in ADP before this? Like we would, we would never know. We would, we felt so out of the loop now with Twitter, you know, like you said, it's all over the place. We all know why guys are going higher because certain people are pumping them and, and, you know, we're all kind of on the same page about it now. Uh, so now you, we talked a lot about NFBC and you obviously play a lot of different formats there. Do you play any other uh, types of leagues like Yahoo, Fantrax, home leagues, anything like that? No, I refuse. I'm 100% loyal to the NFBC. Uh, when I finished that local league with my friends and moved to the NFBC, I, I've never looked back. Um, I, I, and again, it's for many reasons. I mean, we talk about the live events, but in knowing this uh, industry through the years, there are so many companies that have gone out of business that run high stakes. You know, we've all heard these horror stories of people not getting yeah. paid huge amounts of money. And, you know, I look at the rake of the NFBC and people will dis may disagree with me, but I think they deserve all of that. And then some, I have no problem with what they take. And, you know, I'm entering their bigger leagues. Of course, it's an expensive business to run all the licensing fees they have to deal with live events. I mean, when you're buying beverages from a hotel in New York and Vegas, it's an astronomical cost. So, you know, it's, I don't think they're exactly raking in the dough from these events. I mean, they're just regular good people that run the events, but, you know, they have to run a business. I want them to be solvent. I want them to survive. So their rake is well worth it. And I'm just not going to use a different website, a different format, have a different login. These are people I trust. You know, I can email Tom. I can email Greg. They take our feedback. I mean, the FAB system is a result of feedback, right? Yeah. Draft Champions is a result of feedback. Best Ball is a result of feedback. The way we do FAB, what other businesses and companies, to your point earlier, Dave, can you say that? So um, those are some of my fun, the, you know, favorite people, uh, Greg, Tom, and Derek, and they run an incredible uh, competition. So I have no need to look elsewhere. I will be with them as, as long as they're around. I think that was a phenomenal point right we there. Can, and we can cut that too. I think we can definitely cut that and send that to we Derek. We can box too. these up for uh, Derek. He will love this shit. <laughs> he is gonna he's gonna <laughs> love listening to this episode. But no, everything you said is absolutely true. And like I said, I think the people who just kind of look at the numbers of the rake and all that stuff, I don't think they really understand the whole they don't get the whole picture like you like you just kind of pointed out there, you know. They don't see the community, they don't see all the work that goes into what they do and like you said, if we don't support them, I mean, I don't want to live in a world that NFBC doesn't exist in anymore. That right would on. be, that would be the worst possible scenario for me. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm an addict, you know, if, if I, if I don't go and do my live draft in Vegas every year, I mean, I was flipping out in 2020 without it. Yeah. It sucked. It, it was, uh, it, I felt like a fish out of water. It, it was, it was just like, uh, the biggest 
it's probably my favorite weekend of the year for being honest. I mean, I'm, I'm in Vegas with my friends, um, you know, drafting and, and it's kind of the brings together everything that I love. Um, but you also mentioned, you know, there's some other pop places that have popped up along the way that, that became insolvent. And uh, Sean Childs got me into something called Wakofby and uh, they folded in their first year. So I lost the money that I put in for two leagues, I believe. Uh, yeah, it was like, it like $2,000 a league or something like that. Well, you were due between six and eight. I don't remember exactly how much, but right. I think and you, I, won, you won one of those leagues. So you're going to get like six or 8,000, something like that. Yeah. And instead I just lost my whole yeah, entry. It was all so. gone. They just closed up shop and that was it. You were up. <sighs> yep. So, you know, that's, you, we really can't take NFBC for granted. You know, it, it really is. Really. Uh, I mean, as, there are as, so many Johnny come lately's and this yep. is the one tried and true. Absolutely. Um, so you said you're, uh, or I guess we haven't really talked about, but what would you say your biggest weakness is as a fantasy player? Now we, we talked about that you have a rooting interest in the Red Sox, but you don't really let that affect you. So, uh, is there kind of some deep seated biases that you've had over the years that are tough to get rid of, uh, something that you were set on early and it's hard to change, or you're kind of in on the same guys year in and year out, which can kind of be to your detriment or maybe something else. Yeah, no, I think we all have areas to improve. And I would say it's a, a prior bias to players who've either been good or bad to me. You know, players <laughs> who've been good historically, they've won you money, they've won you leagues, you tend to gravitate to. Uh, but worse is the players that have been bad to you. And sometimes you just write them off. And I'll give you the worst example in the world, which is Robbie Ray. Um, it's not that I got burned by him, but I just look at Robbie Ray and I'm not going to lie. When he got called out or drafted last year, I would do a Kurt Gibson fist pump at the draft table. Like, <laughs> yes, someone took him. Because I just know the old Robbie Ray, four innings, four runs, four walks, four earned, six Ks, and moving to Toronto and ballparks, AL East, I wanted nothing to do with him. Um, and as you said, you know, Phil explained it was the strikeouts, and if he hit his top percentile, he could explode. So it wasn't he wasn't exactly predicting Cy Young. So you know, I need to leave those biases at the door and just give everyone a fresh start. Um, so, you know, that would, I would say is my biggest weakness. In addition to that is just looking at too much content and too much information, you know, after 2018, yeah. which was definitely my best year, I got even hungrier in terms of the prep. I wanted to even do better. And I got a little too carried away with my prep, you know, specifically, especially with, um, we all look at numbers, save a metrics, but a lot of people truly don't understand what they're looking at. And they haven't back tested it. You know, we can say these are the three pitchers who hit a ball this hard, hit it this way on this day. Um, but no one's really gone back and looked at it. You know, that's where Phil kind of cracked the code by doing that as well. Um, but I was getting carried away with pitch types, pitch values on fan graphs and looking at who has multiple pitches that are positive. And it just didn't work. So keeping things simple, uh, you know, was one of my goals. As I said, there's so much information out there and yeah. you really got to pick your spots, whether it's podcasts, only have a couple, whether it's websites or publications or just people you trust. And, you know, I know there's a lot of great analysts out there, but I tend to gravitate people to people who play in the NFBC and have skin in the game. I think we look at things much differently than people in other leagues, not that those aren't fine leagues. So I want players who are in the know of the leagues we have, because I do think there's a unique way, you know, to, to approach things. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and one thing I've learned to do is, you know, we're on Twitter. It, I, I evaluate people over time and I, I, you know, you can be a good analyst and not necessarily a good fancy player, 
because uh, you know you see a lot of these people who like they put out really good information but they cannot construct a roster to save their life so when i see them kind of talking about things like oh take this guy at this point and it's like this doesn't doesn't work like you can't just throw all these injury risks early on in the team and, and just be like oh yeah this will work um i also have learned to mute guys on twitter like if if they have just consistently bad takes i don't want that kind of gumming up my searches like when i do a player like when i'm doing my deep dives on players i don't want bad information coming up so i i try to just mute the people who i know that their takes aren't going to help me progress forward as a fantasy player uh and that's uh but yeah you like there is definitely such a thing as too much information and uh you know, I think podcasts are another one, like you said, you know, if you listen to every podcast out there, you're probably going to get, it's going to get overwhelming. There's too much information out there. You really need to kind of sift through it and figure out where the best uh, information is coming from and kind of just focus on those. So where do you think uh, the biggest edge that you have compared to the rest of the field is? Uh, what do you do exceptionally well, or maybe what do you do that others simply don't? Yeah, I, I don't see myself as having any special uh, secrets. Uh, I'm a grinder. You're not going to outwork me. That's number one. I typically don't leave any rock unturned. Um, I'm very prepared. I mean, I walk into a draft and I'm going to execute my plan. I do feel I have a good, and this maybe comes from experience, which clearly you don't need to win these leagues. Phil has proven that. But I do feel that I have a good flow from experience on auction values, where players are going to go. Fab doesn't really surprise me anymore. Um, you know, there's a lot of fab articles out there and I love it because they sort of set the price. <laughs> so I, you know, you can kind of move up or down based on where you feel the masses are going to go. So, you know, I would say from experience that has helped. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a lot of this is what you put in, you get out. It truly is. I mean, that's the great part about fantasy baseball. It's not like uh, fantasy football or a March madness pool, nothing against fantasy football, but people right. could prep for a month and win a league. This league, it's very difficult without putting in the time. So that's one spot I'm not going to lose at. I could be wrong on players. Stuff right. happens. I hate blaming injuries. We all have injuries. Phil had DeGrom on one overall champion and Bauer on another. So let's not talk about injuries anymore. He won overalls and, you know, he had two situations where he lost a great pitcher for at least half the season. So, um, you know, and again, one year might not be a year, but the next year might. So, you know, that's why I still believe in my process and, uh, you know, I'm going to stick with it this year and obviously hopefully not take that bias in that I might have on certain players. I feel like DeGrom was so good in the half year he had that it wasn't even like a detriment to the players who drafted him though. You know, it's like, I, I knew he was going to miss time, but I had no idea that he was going to be as good as, I mean, I thought he was the best pitcher in baseball, but even still he had uh, a historically good year, a half year that nobody could have seen coming at that rate. In your opinion, what's something that fancy players often get wrong or, or do wrong? Um, again, back to where we were talking earlier, I think, um, looking at, uh, analytics and sabermetrics and not truly understanding them. Uh, I see, you know, we see a lot of tweets. I even see some bad advice out there where people are just spinning numbers that they don't understand. So, uh, people make things a lot more too complicated, uh, too much influence, listening to too many people. Uh, worst thing in the world is copying someone though. Uh, I mean, again, if, if, if you're copying someone, you've already lost when that draft has started, as far as I'm concerned, 
to put the money, the time, the risk in, you should not have that type of influence. Hey, it doesn't mean if you see someone like a, a Phil or Mark take a certain picture in round 21, what you should do is go do another second deep dive on that picture That's right. and see if you're missing anything. That's the only yeah. thing you should do. Um, but beyond that, you know, you're never going to win. Just like trying to duplicate someone's system. I mean, I see Phil is doing his pot of tour. You can't copy his system. He can go on six, six times. People who try to copy him are going to finish in dead last. So, uh, you know, it's why he probably has no problem talking about it. So be yourself. And I, I think ultimately you have to trust your gut. Um, you know, I, I think go with, go with who you like, if it's a battle between two players, you know, um, the worst thing that's happened to all of us, of course, is that player that slips and you end up taking him. I mean, nine out of 10 times, it ends up being a disaster. So have some guts, take a player that's not supposed to go for four rounds. But if you want that player, you know, take him there. So agreed. Yeah. Um, you know, when people ask me on Twitter, uh, like when a couple of different analysts that they listen to disagree on something, they say, well, you know, how am I supposed to decide if, you know, I respect your opinion, I respect your opinion, whose opinion do I agree with? And I say, you have to learn to make up your own opinion. Like you have to you should be listening to the people that you trust, but don't just take what they say. Ask yourself, does this make sense? Like internalize it, do your own research and then decide what you think based on what we've told you. But, but don't just say, Oh, you know, Jason likes this guy or, or Phil likes this guy. So I'm going to take him. You should never do that. You should only take them if it makes sense to you. That's a Absolutely. And a lot of the advice we get, you know, there's very good analysts, but they're not all good players <laughs> with all exactly. due respect. You know, there's dual sport threats like your, yourself, but there are some folks who put stuff information out there and they might know their craft. They might be a specialist in pitching, but when I see them talking fantasy or I see their fantasy ranks, I realize that the two don't connect. So I, I believe those <laughs> two are disconnected and there is a value of having analysts who can do our homework for us and deep dive certain things to make it easier for us. But just because someone is an analyst, there's the whole roster construction picture, which exactly. is a whole nother ball game. Exactly. You could have the exact, you could have the best list of rankings and not execute at the draft and not win a league. So there is, you know, it's a combination of factors that you need. It's not just the best prep and the best list and ranking. You got to know how to take those players and put the pieces together. And that to me is the missing spot for, you know, for some players, you know, and I know that topic of roster construction has become more popular and I think it's, even more fascinating than talking about individual players because you got to have that plan in place and then yeah. filling the players in is actually the easy part. But once you do that, that is exactly why we're here. I mean, it, we we've said this a lot of times it's, it's, it's something that we want to teach in this, in this show, you know, we're, we're not going to sit here and every show analyze two rounds of ADP and talk about every player and then that's it and sign off. Like we're, we're doing this, as much as we can, this evergreen content, this this roster construction stuff, this this theoretical discussion, this this strategy. strategy. I mean, that, that's that is that's why we're here. I mean, we've been doing this for a decade plus, and you know, we've been in the you know we haven't been at your highest of stakes, but we've been in the high stakes realm for a long time, and we've seen the game develop and change, and we've kind of we've made, made our mistakes. mistakes. Exactly. Yep. Wow. Jeez. Stop. Stop being in my head, man. Uh, you know, we, all we, three of us, <laughs> we're all we've the done same this thing. stuff. We made the mistakes. We've, we've grown from them. We've learned, you know, hell I made more mistakes last year than I can count and I'm going to move forward and I'm going to grow from it. And that's, that's why we're here. We don't, we don't want to give hot takes and we don't want to talk about 
you know, certain players and tell you, tell them to draft, tell you to draft them. And uh, you know, and, and it'll make or break your season. It, it's, it, we want this to be us giving you the tools and then you utilizing the tools. That's, you know, I'm a teacher by trade. I feel like I say that a lot too. It's, I, I don't like giving my students answers. I, if they ask me a question that they can answer or find themselves in front of me quickly, I'm going to make them do it. And, you know, it might seem a little harsh, but you know, that's how people grow. That's how kids grow. That's how adults grow. That's teach a man to fish. We're, we're, we're doing this to make, I mean, make you want to be good. Yeah. Um, you know, and think critically. Yeah. And think about what you're doing. Like if I'm drafting this guy, do you have a plan for that? Like, or, you know, is it, is he a super volatile guy that you need to keep in your lineup at all times? Like that you need to think about the construction of your roster. And if you take this guy here and later, there's a whole bunch of guys who are kind of similar to him. Why would you take him earlier? You know, we just, we want to help people to kind of think about these things, uh, themselves and become better players because you're never going to become better players if you're always just asking us hey what should i do you know yeah you know i i I don't play a lot of seasonal fantasy football anymore i play a lot of dfs now and it's become a major issue in the cash games in dfs football where it's just let me copy this copy this outlet's optimal lineup yep and you got this big 200 lineup train in one contest that you got to beat every time and it's, it's gross to see, like it, it, there's not a lot of, there's a lot of fish out there just, just doing what somebody tells them or what they pay, uh, you know, 20 bucks a month for. So, you know, not, that's not to say that there's not good fantasy baseball content out there that you pay for and that you can utilize and that you can grow from, but man, oh man, if you're, if you're paying for somebody's ranks and just drafting based on those and not doing anything yourself, you're, you're doing a major disservice to your, to your growth as a player. You're just, you're just going to stagnate. Don't do that. Yeah. You know, two years ago when I started tweeting uh, kind of before Vlad amplified me and kind of got me a bunch of followers, um, you know, I used Twitter, but I didn't really, you know, I didn't really ever tweet. But one of the first things I said was, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't like that our, you know, the fantasy baseball industry as a whole is kind of represented by people who, you know, they're analysts, but they're not actually good fantasy players. And they, they give a lot of bad advice. And I saw a lot of people saying, draft Verlander this year. And that was 2020 after we found out that like, he's clearly not healthy and uh, talking about changing his mechanics and all this to try to stay healthy. And it's like, there's so many red flags here. And there's someone who's literally ranking him as his number one starter for that year. And I'm just like, this is so irresponsible. Like people, this, these guys have so many followers following this bad advice. And it was just like, what are we doing here? And that's the thing. Like a lot of people just don't know, who to follow and they follow people from ESPN and, you know, Yahoo and these big, these big corporations that have all these followers, but they don't really know how to win really and play fantasy baseball. Well, there's, there are some, you know, people who are counter examples to that, but by and large, there's a lot of bad advice out there. And, and like you were saying, Jason, you know, it's, you got to learn to kind of tune the bad info out and just listen to the people who really know what they're talking about. So um, one of the things that I wanted to explore this off season, and if you heard uh, our episode with um, Mr. Jim Tomini, uh, is kind of how our game has changed. And I'm, I'm really interested to hear your answers on this because you've been around, like Jake said, longer than I've been around, longer than Jim's been around. Um, so like kind of exploring the changing landscape uh, of the high stakes realm and what players are doing, the good players are doing to adapt because 
some some have adapted, but a lot of people haven't. We saw a lot of people, you know, 10, 15 years ago who were some of the best players in the high stakes realm who uh, kind of aren't really aren't really there anymore. And there's kind of that changing of the guard. You know, we've got the the old school players are kind of struggling to stay on top uh, with the new database methods players kind of coming in and winning quickly. So as someone who's kind of from the old guard of NFBC, how do you see the the high stakes landscape changing? Yeah, I think if you haven't adapted, like I said earlier, you would certainly be left behind. Uh, I mentioned earlier, but pitching is the biggest on multiple levels. I mean, starting pitching has all been moved up, of course, so it's gotten much harder. You have to pay a bigger price, but also closers have changed quite a bit. Uh, back in the day when I started, the second tier closers went much earlier. By round 10, usually, anybody who had a job was getting drafted, even if they were a terrible closer. So everyone is so much smarter on closers and saves now. Uh, fab dollars were much higher for closers back in the day, but we've all been burned now. Obviously, there's lots of committees. So, you know, I, I, again, I know there's the haters and the Hendricks, which go early, but as a whole, closers are cheaper than ever in auctions and closers go later than ever. So people have learned there, um, you know, that's been a change. But again, the starting pitching is the biggest one, certainly. And also, too, uh, and I'm not going to pick on any names of any particular players, but I, I do feel that some people just put out too radical of strategies, you know, especially in some of these um, high stakes events. Uh, I'm not saying you have to play with balance. Many people are doing things differently, but you'll see some very unique roster builds. So basically, because the stakes are higher, trying to do something much different than they would, you know, do in a normal league. So, um, but again, it's, uh, and I'll admit, I was definitely very slow to adapt to pitching. I was very stubborn with it. I was all about getting my highly skilled pitchers later, but I learned, uh, you know, what you need to, what I need to do personally, because I just know myself, I'm not going to find pitchers, starting pitchers on the waiver wire that are solid. If you can do that power to you. Um, but again, the worry I have, and I think the trend will change is, a lot of us think the same here. I'm not saying anything unique. So, you know, there will be someone and I've seen it that, you know, fades what we're doing, does something different and looks good uh, by doing it. So I don't think this is a trend that's going to necessarily last forever, but it's, it's very difficult to not pay up for pitching. And as I said, people are just much smarter on the closers right now. So that would be the biggest change that I would say, uh, you know, in addition to that, I just feel like everybody is good in your league. Uh, I'm not saying the NFBC has any weak, uh, you know, individuals in it, but back in the day, 10 years ago, two guys would show up with a magazine and that was it. <laughs> Dead meat, right? Magazine was printed two months ago. Uh, it's the, the people are so competitive now. So, you know, again, I know people will use these terms sharks or leagues of death. Every league is tough, you know, from 12 Every teams to 15 league, yeah. teams, they're all tough. I mean, yes, I think some are tougher than others. So, you just have to realize what your competition is doing right now. You know, if uh, they're prepping, they're drafting right now, you know, Phil's creating, uh, you know, regression machines in his Excel while you're sleeping. So that, <laughs> that, that takes my attention. You know, I, I see the grind that these people have. And, you know, when they talk about prep, that motivates me to prep even harder. Uh, as I said, this is not something you're going to wait till March 1st, uh, like you might have with your local league and you're going to get by. So, um, I don't see, you know, maybe you can overdo it. Maybe you can look at too much information, but if you keep it simple, you put your time in, I think, you know, results will come. So we've kind of talked about how, you know, now with fan graphs and stat and Twitter and Rotowire and NFBC, NBC edge and the forecaster, et cetera, there's so much information out there that it's, it's ubiquitous and anybody can kind of uh, gain an edge uh, on the casual player. If you know how to use that information properly, but 
what I'm curious about is, is how people back in the day, you know, back in 2005, back in, you know, 2010, even, uh, how did they get that edge? Because I did, I felt like I gained mine by, by developing strategy and risk assessment, because I didn't know anything when it came to, you know, player analysis, like, because we didn't have these tools available to us. So, you know, I, I heard some people used to go to the Arizona fall league and talk to scouts and rely on insider info, because like, you know, if you didn't have all this information out there, how would you know about those kind of upcoming guys that you didn't even really see last year? You know, like, what did you do back then? Did you have a, did you have any inside info or did you kind of talk to scouts or anything? I, I, I was a very early adopter of the forecaster. And to me, that was just okay. groundbreaking. You know, it taught me simple, but very useful metrics and not everybody used it back then. So I would say the edge in the infancy of the NFBC was the forecaster. It was the Bible. It was the best thing out there. And now everybody reads the forecaster. So you have to read it just to know what groups are thinking like. So, you know, that to me gave me a slight edge at the beginning because not everybody in the room was using it. Maybe five out of 15 were using it. But beyond that, yeah, it was a grind. It wasn't as easy as it was today. There were very few websites providing um, updates. Um, I mean, I made fun of magazines before, but you used to grab a couple magazines, grab a forecaster, try to scramble online. I always got a lot out of the um, first pitch forums uh, that used to come right to the town I live in. They would uh, travel here. And that was great to um, get some inside information. Um, you know, I remember once uh, just share an antidote. Adam Dunn had a terrible, terrible, terrible year the year prior. He was very consistent, you know, his typical 240, 40 home runs. And I remember Ron Chandler during Q&A saying that he heard a little nugget that he had some personal stuff going on in his life. Well, obviously, that's a very understandable excuse. Sure enough, you know, Adam Dunn came right back the next year. So, you know, I know now there's so many articles and we read these and we hear tweets. So you would keep your ears and eyes open. Um, you know, I also think I, I know it's old school and I lean on numbers more, but there is something about watching baseball. Uh, I would definitely prioritize numbers. I know some people don't watch any baseball, which I, I hate that aspect of it. It's not as much fun as what I do, but watching games is a good thing. You know, um, you know, sometimes the pitcher his box score doesn't tell a whole story. We all know terrible defense should have been called an error, should have been a double play. So, you know, I think the more you watch, you see, you know, pressure moments, uh, if a pitcher just looks like he's, you know, in a groove, uh, you know, a couple pitchers in that ace tier, I feel, you know, some of their numbers are warranted. Some perhaps look a little better to the eyeball. So, you know, I use a little bit of the eyeball test, but I am, I am not a scout by any means, but I just try to take a combination of everything that's available to me. But back in the day, uh, again, it was much simpler, <laughs> but it was just basically the forecaster and anything you could find online. So awesome, now it's awesome. become a lot more time consuming because there's so much to digest. Yeah, it was a lot more, uh, a lot more guessing back then and a lot less information out there. Right. Jake, when do you think we started using the forecaster? Um, like 20, you, you were getting the 15? forecaster for I, it was about when I started in FBC. So maybe 13, 14. Yeah, 13, you would, four, yeah that's you've, you've been 13, annually getting it for right. Christmas from your parents. And now you're moving up <laughs> the, uh, the arrival date. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, my mom was like, "What can I get you for Christmas?" I'm like, "Well, this is something that I want every year, so might as well." It's 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 the only thing I spend money on when it comes to fancy baseball yeah. materials. All right, uh, Jason, let's let's give the people what they want out there. Let's do some player analysis to close out the show. Uh, we're gonna look at some players in the top 50 ADP from the last 14 draft champions leagues over the last three weeks in the NFBC, starting 
Uh, I believe December 22nd is what I pulled from. So December 22nd to now 14 team league or 15 team leagues uh, draft and hold 50 rounds. But so, so there's, there's a little bit of, you know, well, you, you, you're drafting this team for the whole season. So that might be affecting how people are drafting a little bit. We know things are going to change a little bit when the mains come around, you know, that, that, that starting pitching tends to move up a little bit. The hot names move up by then, but um, there's, there's a little less risk or a little more risk aversion, I think in these DCs early on from some people that normally take more risks, but uh, we'll start off with the, these are all somewhat polarizing players. I should say Dave Dave picked this nice list of, of guys that a lot of people are, are very strongly for or against people have. Yeah. Stronger takes on these guys, either they're, they're Mm -hmm. in on them or they're not in on them. Yep. These are all top 50. So we'll start off at the top Uh, for Fernando Tatis going at about 2.3 in the NFBC. So he's got a two ADP second player off the board in, in the majority of drafts that he goes in. Uh, Jason, how do you feel about starting your team off in a 50 round draft and hold with Fernando Tatis? Uh, I'll say I didn't go to the same medical school as Dave, uh, but I think we will agree on a lot of these. Um, I am completely out on this. Uh, talent wise, he's incredible, but let's just talk about last year. How many times did his uh, shoulder pop out of the socket? Three times. Uh, from what I've read, and again, I am not a doctor, uh, you're more vulnerable for this to continue happening once it's happened already. He didn't get surgery on it, and he's such a dynamic player. He's diving, he's sliding. Those toolsy guys really worry me because he only has one gear the way he plays. Let's not forget he has a long-term contract. And how long is San Diego going to continue to just keep popping his shoulder and without really worrying about the future repercussions? I mean, everything I've read, again, not, not my own opinion is – you're putting the player at more risk. So I, I hope it doesn't happen. I want these incredible talents to stay healthy, but I'm not taking him. Those other players near him all look great, but that shoulder still worries me. And I was shocked what happened last year. He was Superman. I thought he was out for the year each and every time it happened, but I'm not going to play that game. That's one of those. If I draft him and he gets hurt, I'm going to say, shame on me. Why, how did I avoid the most clear signs possible? So I'm a complete avoid on him. Uh, Tatis. There was about four. He was on my super team that I got auto picked him with my first pick. And there's about four different times where they're like, yeah, I think he's out for the year. And then, you know, a couple of days later, they'd be like, oh, well, he's going to go on the IL for for a week or so, but then he should be back. I'm like, thank God. But like every time, you know, I thought I just lost my entry fee to the super. I was like, okay, well, I just flushed $2,500 because I have Fernando Tatis and like it kept happening. And he, you can't, he's like Grady Sizemore. He's such an aggressive player. You can't stop him from taking risks with his body. He's going to keep doing it. He was sliding all over the place, stealing bases and everything. I mean, and if he stops doing those things, then he's not the same guy either. That's not the guy that you want to draft. So there's just, there's so many downsides to taking Tatis at two. Like I get that he might be the most talented player in baseball probably is. Uh, I'll wait until he gets uh, shoulder surgery and, and is actually healthy uh, before taking him because I can win without him. Um, but I, I very difficult to win if I draft him and then lose him. Yeah. He could be healthy all year. I mean, Lord, it, like you said, there were four times last year where we thought he was done. You were, you were, you know, crying in your Cheerios multiple times last year for that super team when you thought he was out for the whole year. And then he came back and, and still dominated. And I, I mean, I, I was shocked, you know, I, you know, he's a young guy, so he made it work. Uh, seemed to develop more power despite the shoulder injury as the season went on. Crazy. But I, I, I frankly can't believe with, with his age, 
and how much of a career he has in front of him and how much that franchise invested in him that they didn't just have the surgery. I mean, they had a disappointing season. You know, they never shut him down. They never just said, you know, we're going to take care of this and, and make sure you're, we're, we're going to extend your career. I mean, all they did was move him to the outfield and, and kind of hope it went away. And I mean, yeah, maybe he knows his body better than everybody else. Maybe the team doctors have something, but, you know, based on their pitching staff that they accumulated, I, I don't know how much the team doctors know about mitigating health risks. So I, I'm, I'm like you guys, I, I'm not going to bother. There are a number of guys that I will take over him at that ADP that go well, behind him. And by the way, that's the thing that can happen next year. If they're not competitive, something happens and they're, yeah, they're not they could shut them down. They could just shut them down and say, okay, we're just going to do the shoulder surgery now. I mean, I don't think people are even considering these risks because they're like, oh, that won't happen. It's like, why wouldn't it? Because he played is, through is... it once before, so he proved that he can do it. So he's going to sure, do it. Sure, sure. If, if that's what you have to say. He's to young, him, Dave. Oh, he's oh, young. Fine. Yeah. He's uh-huh. Young. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, speaking of guys with injury risk. Now, this one, he did get the surgery, and he looks to be uh, pretty healthy. I mean, dude's, dude's uh, hitting some, some nice-sounding uh, shots in batting practice we right now. We all see the batting practice videos, yeah. which always matter, as we the know. Vids, the vids are out. Um, what say you, Jason, about Ronald Acuna going at 15, coming off of his major knee injury? ACL, I believe, right? Yeah. I, yeah, I thought yeah. it was me. Yeah. Based on what we know today, and that's the caveat, because I might change here, I am out. And the reason I'm out is my first round pick is playing on opening day. I, you know, with how valuable roster spots are, how setbacks can happen, um, you know, we were, I think, under the assumption, I know this video is peaking interest now of him hitting, but we were thinking maybe he's out one month and he's incredible talent. So this is one of those wait and see spring training. If I see good signs, if I think he's going to be, uh, playing opening day, I, I will certainly take him and I will move him up maybe middle of the first round. I don't think he's stealing 40 bases again. I mean, that is going to be an impact of this 20 ACL, I feel. I mean, he'll run again, but I just can't see that coming back fully. But I would absolutely be in if he was playing opening day. Um, I'm much more concerned about Tatis because, like you said, he did have the surgery uh, and he's coming back. But if I'm drafting a team today, um, I would say out, but that one could change. I the exact same opinion as you. I right now I can't take that risk. You know, um, come spring training, uh, he might be ready. But I've I've heard he'll probably be ready closer to to May, maybe maybe mid May. Uh, of course, we might not even be playing baseball by then. So who knows? You know, uh, if the season doesn't start until June, God help us. Please please don't let that be the case. But uh, if it is, then he could be ready by opening day, and then he becomes like you said, uh, probably a mid first rounder. But if you're drafting today. You, you should be out on him. There's that's really just that simple. Uh, I'm, I'm also of the wait and see approach, but even the wait and see approach might not work because I mean, a guy coming off a major injury like that, he might, you know, he's young. He could decide, yeah, I'm going to run. I'm going to show everybody I'm healthy. Or the team could say, Hey, we want you on the field opening day. Don't steal any bases. We know you're going to be okay. And then we look at him and we say, well, he's not running. So we have to be cautious here and we could end up being wrong, but um, you know, for right now, I'm definitely not touching it because I'm using a, a, a pick on the turn for him at the end of the first. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I don't love building my team around outfielders, but you know, if he's healthy and he's stealing even 25, you know, I'm, I'm all about it. That's fine, yeah. but I don't see it. So I can't trust it. Uh, let's go to one of your boys, Jason Mookie Betts going at 17 for the Dodgers now, but, uh, 
do you feel as though there's a bit of a bounce back coming for speed? You know, he was dealing with some injuries as well last year. That hip injury. Yeah, yeah this is kind of an evergreen end uh, with Mookie. And I do feel there is more risk now. So, you know, not being a uh, homer, even though he's in the Dodgers now, I just feel the price has baked in that injury risk. And I'm not painting any illusions that he's going to be stealing 30 bases again, but I, I, I give guys mulligans and he has a mulligan last year. So, you know, I know we look at skill sets and trends, but I'm wiping last year out. He had so many, I know the hip was the most serious issue, but he had so many different issues. He was playing hurt most of the time. And, you know, I, I don't, I know the Dodgers are probably going to be in the uh, driver's seat in terms of playoffs, but I don't think they want to continue to baby him so much. They just invested a massive contract. I think they're going to want to throw him out there. So, you know, I look at his skill set as maybe now he's a 30-15 player, but where Mookie could be so special is uh, the runs category, you know, and the RBIs category. And I, I do see a big drop-off kind of in that middle of the first round, like many people do with um, offensive players. So the back end of the first half, the way I see it today, it's very kind of even till the middle of the second round. So, um, I like his value. I like his cost. I mean, you know, again, I'm going to wait and see how he's doing in spring training, but similar to Jim on your last podcast, he could pick it up when he wanted in the playoffs. He was stealing bags then. Right. And he didn't get caught. So, uh, I'm going to keep a close eye on it, but I, I like the cost of Mookie. I mean, again, 300, I'm thinking out loud, 30 and 15, um, tons of runs, great lineup. So, uh, I'd be in at Mookie bets. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. Um, I don't know, I guess I, I don't have a fully formed opinion on it yet, but where I was currently at was right now I'm not drafting him. Um, obviously, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that the speed is really coming back. Uh, I, I just, I don't, I don't know that they need him to run like kind of like what Jim said, like, you know, he turned it down in the playoffs, but when, when it wasn't the playoffs, he wasn't running much because they were just kind of trying to save his health. Um, but maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe they don't baby him this year. Maybe the hip isn't as much of an, in, uh, an issue, but the fact that he didn't have the surgery done, that's a warning flag for me. Like I, I, I just, I feel like it's going to be very difficult to see him getting through the, the season without that flaring up and being a, an issue at times. Now, maybe he doesn't miss serious time, but maybe he goes on the IL two, three times, misses, you know, a couple weeks here and there. And uh, you know, only plays like 110, 115 games or something. And then, you know, I just, I, I don't know. It doesn't really appeal to me as my uh, basically first round or very early second round pick. Yeah. I, I passed on it at 19 in my first draft I did. And um, I, like I said, on the last pot, I originally thought I was going to be in and then I just kept looking. I kept saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not ready to pull that trigger right now. And and he very well could be a lead in runs. Uh, that, that's one thing that uh, that category is so often overlooked in seasonal fantasy. The runs category is when you can yeah. get a guy that's going to score 115, 120 runs at the top of a lineup like that. I mean, that, that is really hard to, it's hard for the average player to see how important that is just because it doesn't get all the, the pizzazz and the, or in the, the accolade. But I mean, th those runs are so hard to find as you go down the draft. Uh, so he could make me look dumb. He could steal 20 bases. He could hit 30 homers. He could to hit 280 to 300 and make me look stupid, but I I'm, I'm not ready. I just, I, I have to see it. He, he didn't get the surgery on the hip. Um, I don't know. I, 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 it's an outfielder. So I'm okay passing on outfielders if I'm unsure early on. Uh, what about another outfielder going at the same ADP? Mike Trout, 17 as well. 
Uh, another guy, we, we got injury theme going on today. Uh, had a calf injury that was supposed to keep him out for like four weeks and it ended up being four months. So <laughs> how do we feel about, about Mike Trout going into 2022, Jason? Yeah, um, that calf injury was crazy. And it's just scary because there's a lot of patterns of injuries with him. I mean, Mookie, these injuries came on last year, but Trout, you know, the last uh, several years has had tons of injuries. Um, Again, the price is not too bad. I mean, look at the ADP. I would definitely take Mookie over him. Um, I, I, you know, there's players I'm out on, there's players I'm in on, and he would sort of be in the middle where, you know, middle of second round, I can see it happening. Now, I have no hopes of speed. I mean, I would be drafting him like I would be drafting Freddie Freeman in terms of expectations. Um, and again, with Trout, he is so good where if you could somehow get 130 games, I think you're going to break even with that pick. So I'm not out on him, but he's certainly not a, um, a target of mine. And again, I'm going to have the assumption that he comes in fully healthy um, but it's, it's definitely not going to be a target, but he's not a cross off like some guys on this list. Yeah. Um, for me, he is, he is a cross off. I just the, the lower body injuries, like you mentioned, uh, they've been, they've been prevalent for years. And, uh, I think expecting him to stay healthy this year is, it would be foolish unless, unless there's something that comes out where there's a reason that he's going to stay healthy this year. I, I don't know what that would be though. Um, you know, he worked really hard on yoga or something. I, I don't know. Um, I, yeah, like you said, he doesn't have stolen bases as a part of his game anymore either. So, you know, I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting a good average and I'm getting power and, you know, obviously he's really good when he plays, uh, one of the best, but, um, you know, that's just early on, I I'm looking to avoid outfielders and I'm looking to get steals and, uh, he, he kind of, kind of dings both of those and the injury risk on top is just uh, a little bit too much for me. So I'm just going to be out on him this year. Yeah, for me, elite power bat that I can't hope to steal more than eight to ten bases, and he's an outfielder. So eight to ten. I mean, if that, I mean, that's yeah, I would be that's shocked. The most, that. That's the yeah. most. I mean, you I can't expect five. more than that. But I mean, being an outfielder, having the injury risk. I mean, calves, those are notorious for cropping up. I mean, look, talk to Josh, Josh Donaldson. Donaldson. I know, I know, Trout's not as old as Josh Donaldson, but right those those things don't go away very easily and we saw that he was supposed to come back a number of times and just kept getting pushed back now granted that could have been because the angels were out of it early but i just too early for an outfielder that's not going to run that much i i I know he's an elite hitter in a a couple categories but it's just not enough for me not to mention he's Uh, 30 years old and he doesn't really need to run like they don't that's not what they need him for i mean yeah Otani ran, but yeah, he, he doesn't need to. You're right. He's, he's done that. And we talked about guys like Matt Kemp, you know, they, they beef up yeah. as they get older, they stop running. They, they might be able to, they just, they just don't, you know, they don't need he's that wear and tear on their body. Yeah, he is. He's a he's six, two, two yep. Not, yep. not exactly the ideal base stealing size. No, he's not slow, but yeah, you're right. Uh, our favorite guy in the podcast, Jacob DeGrom <laughs> going at, at, at a 23 ADP right now. Are you in or out on the best pitcher in baseball going in the middle of the second, Jason? Uh, Maybe this answers it. I think I have Nick Pavetta ranked ahead of Jacob right now. (laughs) Um, You Homer. 
This, uh, this is my favorite one here, and I cannot believe this one. And I know there's some people very defensive. I've seen Dave battle. They happen to be Mets fans, though. I'm just going to put that out there, the optimist here. <laughs> but how many times? I mean, he has a partially torn UCL. So the way that I see this playing out, because we've only seen it 100 times. I know Tanaka is a survivor who came back for and was okay. But... I hate to say it. I don't want to see the guy hurt. I know he's an all-time legend, but what I think people are missing here, there's just, there's a thing called injury prone. And then there's, a, then there's a thing where if you get injured, you're out for the season. So if he, if he comes in and tears it, I mean, we heard this, you know, Sandy Alderson said it resolved itself as, as if you believe the Mets or Sandy <laughs> Alderson. Uh, two, three years ago, Chris Sale was told he had a bionic elbow. The doctor's never seen anything like it. When these go, you're flying to Birmingham, Alabama to meet James Andrews, and you're out for the season. So that to me is either he's the best pitcher in the world, the best player in fantasy, or you get nothing. I mean, the over-under could be a half an inning, and I hope I'm wrong, but I hit the way he ended a season did not inspire any trust whatsoever. And how many players have we seen the torn UCL or the flexor strain? Let's get the PRP injections. Let's not throw for three weeks. It turns out horrible so many times. I, I hope he stays drafted here. I, I really feel when the money's on the line, he's going to slip. He's going to slide. Don't get me wrong. In a DC, it's a go big or go home pick. I think it kind of makes sense to just grab him and not care. If he does great, you could win an overall. But um, that one I cannot believe, and I don't think he's going to last anywhere near there. You know, where the rubber hits the road is when they report to spring training and they really stop throwing. And never trust a player quotes from the player. They're all super competitive. They're never yep. going to let anything out. So that, as I said, I am no chance, no chance. I mean, I have zero faith in the Mets. We knew he was fucked last year and, and they were just like, Oh yeah, well we, he says he's fine though. So he's going to go out there and no MRI. And then, and then he got, and then he got hurt. And it was like, <laughs> and then he was done for the rest of the year. And it was like, Oh gee, who didn't see that coming? But of course, you know, I was trying to be nice, Dave, last year, so I couldn't like come out and say that because then all of the people would be all up on me telling me that I'm rooting for injuries and shit. And it's just like, no, but like, this is so dumb. Resolved itself? What the fuck does that even mean? Like, if you break your leg, I mean, think, some things heal naturally. This is not one of them. <laughs> I mean, and, and certainly not in that span of time. Um, but first of all, Jason, uh, you know, how dare you? You're not a doctor. How can you proclaim these things? Okay. Uh, no, but like playing, playing at this level for as many years as we have, we have so many years of experience seeing the fallout of these injuries. You don't have to be a doctor to know this. Like, it's just not that complicated, guys. It's, it's, it's not a, I'm not a doctor. It's all the appeals of authority, right? It's, you're not a doctor. You can't know this, blah, blah, blah. Well, I, I've seen these injuries over time. Like you said, hundreds of times, it's never good. It's like when you see PRP. I know Kershaw's fucked. I don't care what anybody tells me otherwise. <laughs> He's out. He's done. Like, I don't, it's, it's, you guys can keep playing these games of you're not a doctor. You can't talk about things all you want, but you're wrong. And that's just the simple fact of it. I'm sorry. It's just, this is years of experience talking. Bring on the Twitter warriors. That's I'm fine. Gonna, Bring them on. I'm going to, I'm going to say, I have nothing more to add at this juncture. <laughs> this is why everybody loves Jake. This is what Jake. I do deflect <laughs> all right let's go to dave's true love shane bieber oh. at 28 end of the second round another guy injury theme uh we have a shoulder problem this time shoulder for a pitcher uh did not come back and do very much last year came back a tad but 
just some relief stuff. Uh, Jason, any consideration to Shane Bieber at 28? Yeah, this one is not as uh, cut and dry as DeGrom. I mean, shoulder, sometimes guys can get through it, sometimes they can't. But that's too rich for my blood. And to your point, I didn't like the way he came back. I love seeing players come back at the end of the year, even if it's two, three, four starts to look strong. But, you know, that shoulder can bark at any time. So that's one. And again, love the pitcher. Um, obviously, if he didn't have that, you know, he'd be a first round pick. But I'm going to be out on Bieber. Um, but then again, that's one really need to see in spring training. But uh, I think he's a fade. he's a fade right now for me. Yeah, sad, sad to say, because obviously he's he's my boy. I I love him very much. Uh, he, he did great things for me in 2020. Um but yeah, like you said, um, that sh- shoulder scares the crap out of me. And, um, you know, he was out for three months and then came back for three innings at the end of the year. And I didn't like the way he came back either. And it, it just kind of seemed like it was like a, a show me kind of injury. I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't have any faith that he's going to be able to stay healthy next year. So I, I'm going to have to be out. I tend to agree. Uh, you know, I, I'm probably getting a pitcher before that point, unless I have a top pick, you know, unless I get lucky. And if I do have a top pick at that point, I'm probably going to jump somebody over him or just go the closer route. I'm, I'm not confident enough to make him my ACE either. I, I just didn't see enough. Like you guys were saying, that's I shoulders are really tough. Like it, and to take a guy that has a, had a major shoulder injury that again, we, we didn't really hear, everything that went on with that one either. It was, yeah, there's a lot of missing information. You know, they did the same thing with Brad hand too. It was just the the mystery shit. And they never, they never came out and said exactly what was wrong. Oh, the MRI showed this is all healed, blah, blah, blah. There's just too much doubt. Um, Even if I see him in spring, there's still too much doubt for me. I don't, uh, I don't think that's a risk I want to take either. You know, we're we're risk. There's other other guys. There's other guys that you can take there. Yep. Yep. Okay. Finally, a guy not coming off of injury in any way, coming off of easily the best season of his career, making me very sad for drafting him in 2019 and not getting anything. Cedric Mullins going at 29, um, shot up. Obviously, he was an afterthought last year. Now he's at the end of the second round. Some guys are jumping him. I've seen him go almost towards the beginning of the second round in this offseason so far in a couple drafts. Um what do you think, Jason? Is is are we buying the breakout to continue to help him deliver end of the second value? Yeah, I'm going to be out on him, and that's one of the bias I have. I just hate these pop up players that I don't want to say can't come out of nowhere, but I, I just can't buy in the following year. With that being said, I mean his skills do look legit. Everything I see is supported, so. I don't think he's going to be a bust. I know Camden's moving in the fences, but all his home runs were to right field and that's not affected. So, um, you know, again, if he was, this is fantasy land, but if he was fourth or fifth round, I'd probably be interested, but I'm not going to pay that price coming off the um, career year, but I don't look at that as a bad pick. You know, I mentioned earlier, I'll do the Kurt Gibson fist pump when I uh, dislike (laughs) a player and you take him. Mullins, you know, he could very well be worth that pick. And uh, I don't think it's a terrible price, but I'm out based on the pop-up effect from year over year. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the reason I'm not concerned about the pop-up is because of the fact that he stopped switch hitting. So he he is just, uh, you know, he, he's, he's a left-handed bat now. So even versus lefties. So um, obviously I, I do think that some of those uh, stats are inflated. I, I don't think that he's going to hit 30 home runs again, especially – uh, with them now moving the fence back uh, in Camden. Um, 
but the the other thing that bothers me is that it's 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 such a low RBI total. I mean, he had 675 plate appearances, hitting leadoff. He had 30 homers. Yeah, and he, he didn't even average two yeah. RBI per homer. That's so, like Adam Dunn, even worse. Yeah, he had 59 RBI, and that's 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 really tough to to digest. Like, yeah, you could be getting 25, 25, which is awesome. Um, and and honestly, that does matter to me more than the RBI does. But I mean, you're not even getting 100 runs. Yeah. And the RBIs are under 60 and that's with almost 700 plate appearances. So those are almost certainly due to regress to some degree. And it's still such a bad lineup. Um, I think you nailed it right there. I mean, I, I really think that that like we were saying with the runs with, with, with bets before the, that category and the RBIs, those are, those are second fiddle to the big, yeah. the big two. Right. And well, I guess even the big three average uh, we, we, there is no hope of him having 75 RBI let alone maybe even 65 RBI at, at that end. It's still the end of that lineup is so, I mean, I'm not going to say bad. no hope. I mean, he is, uh, he is projected for 73 RBI. That, that's that fine. Anything, that, but, the end mean, of, yeah. But I mean, looking at the end of the Baltimore lineup, uh, yeah. you know, it's, okay. Oh, it's, it's a wasteland. I, I mean, mean how many I guys on base they're going to have Jacob Nottingham is going to be playing catcher probably for the first month and a half of the season. <laughs> Kelvin Gutierrez. I mean, maybe Jorge material sneak in there and, and get on base, but my God, Nobody's going to be at Runet Odor is going to be hitting one. Put some respect on Ramon Urias. And Sorry. Ruben yeah. Odor's hitting six. Name. He's, he's going to be off the bases by the time Mullins comes up. So, <laughs> Oh my God, that, Oh wow. The top five is really solid. And then, wow. You know, um, though, I'm, I'm still not completely out on him. It just has no. to be the right, the right, right. team construction in the right place. I mean, he's not going to be a target, but he's, he's got to who... fall to probably the middle of the third at the, at the earliest for me. And I okay. have to be okay taking an outfielder. Like I, I have to have really needed speed after my first two picks. Maybe I went, you know, ace, ace. Um, even so, I don't, I don't still feel confident starting with my first hitter as an outfielder. But, you know, gosh, I, I feel like I want a little bit more. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't expect him to hit more than twenty home runs next year with them moving the fences. His hard hit rates were average. Uh, you know, he was definitely aided by that park a little bit and, and that could continue, you know, there's other good hitting parks in that, in that division. So, um, I don't know. Yeah. Like, like you, Dave, I'm, I'm not out, out, but I am looking at a lot of other players before I select him. I agree with that. Uh, now onto my boy, Whitmerfield at 31, uh, just at the beginning of the third, um, I kind of already gave away my hand there, but Jason, how do you feel about, uh, starting with a guy that's kind of, you know, a notorious compiler at the beginning of the third round. At age yeah, I think I, I, I'd be in on this. I think it's a solid pick. Boring guy, but plays a million games. Obviously uh, gives you two of the toughest categories we all look for. Decent batting average, some stolen bases, multi-position. Um, I think he's a great pick. I sort of put him in that class with um, Bogarts. You know what you're going to get there. So I think, um, you know, based on where he's going, uh, fine pick. I'm in on that. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, uh, it's, it's tough. Uh, I know he stopped running in the last month, but that could have been just because they didn't really have anything to play for, but I mean, who's to say it's going to be any different this year is the question. And, you know, the fact that he's 33 years old now, um, I learned a long time ago not to get burned on old speed, you know, guys who are, who are past their prime, who, you know, even though they're still running, but then again, coming off of 40 steals, it's really tough to see him like all of a sudden reverting to like, you know, 15 or 20. Uh, I still feel like he'll probably be in the 30 range. I don't, I don't know about 40 though. Um, and you know, the power is what it is, you know, you're probably going to get uh, 10 homers, but you know, he still had 74 RBI 
uh, which was uh, 15 more than Mullins in with one third of the homers. Yeah. So that that tells you how much better the Royals uh, back end right. lineup is compared to the Orioles. Yep. And uh, the Orioles did not get better. Uh, granted, he did also have like 50 more plate appearances because he had. This is all in 720 plate appearances. Dude, dude plays. He does he, not sit. Exactly. No, I think that that's actually a positive for him because, like you said, he's very healthy. He never sits. He plays every day. Um, you're basically, you're getting someone who contributes in every category, even though he's not going to give you much in the power category, you know, 10 is still not nothing. It's not like, you know, three homers or something like that. So, um, and he's projected for 14 for what that's worth. I don't, I don't know where that comes from or whatever, but I mean, I guess his previous years, he had 16 in 2019, he had nine in the short season. So maybe he, uh, just underperformed a little bit last year and, uh, maybe he'll, he'll come back up. So he's another guy who I'm kind of. He's not a target, but I'm not out on him. Uh, yeah, I, I, I will always have love for Wit. Um, I love dudes that don't sit. I love guys that play every day. Uh, he, he seems like, I mean, he's a, he's a leader of that team. He's very vocal in the press. Um, a guy that just cares about playing the game. He loves playing the game, wants to succeed. Uh, that said, skills are still really, really solid. Plate skills are good. You know, he doesn't walk a ton, but he also doesn't strike out a ton. So he's putting the ball in play getting on base, better lineup. Like you said, Dave, back in the lineup's not great, but it's also not the Orioles. Um, and yeah, I do, I do expect the power to go up just a hair, maybe 12 to 15. Um, the stolen bases will likely go down as well. But, you know, we remember after 19, you know, I had him on my auction team in 19 when I won and he only stole 20 bags that year and got caught 10 times. And everybody was like, well, what's done. He's not running anymore. And then all he did was go out the next year and steal 12 in, you know, two months. And then he stole 40 and only got caught four times at age, what, 32, 33? Yeah, 32. Uh, dude, dude's, a, dude's a player. I, I I don't have any qualms taking wit. You know, I, I don't need to worry about getting 35 homers with my first couple round picks. There's power everywhere. I want batting average. I want guys that are in the lineup. I want guys that are making shit happen. So I'm, I'm taking wit. You know, I know he's not going to hit three you know, 305, 310, but he's also not going to hit 240 and, and be totally empty. So I'm, I'm on it. Um, okay. Uh, Robbie Ray, another, another last year pop-up guy, but he'd done it before. Lots of things changed for him. You know, we've talked on this show about how he basically changed his approach, you know, moved his mechanics a little bit in 20, went back, started just throwing the ball towards the middle of the zone and seeing what happened and, and good things happened. Instead of trying um, to hit the corners, they're just right. like, just throw when, it towards the middle you, of the play. When you have shitty control, don't try to control the ball. Just yeah. throw it up there. Um, you got a good fastball. So, you can do that. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Jason? Is, is this, are you going to jump in and, and expect him to not do the whole thing where he regresses back like he did in 2018 or whatever it was? Uh, I'm out as well. Again, pop-up guy, you're paying ace price. Um, I think last year skills obviously fully supported, but I, I just look at the control. I mean, if that tilts a little bit the other way, he's still going to have monster strikeouts. So I think that's very safe that, you know, he's going to have well over 200 strikeouts, but I just worry about the ratios. I know it's a good ballpark. It's a good setting, but just new team, big contract, pop-up year, incredible year. Uh, I mean, again, I just go back to history more times than not, these guys flop. So I'm going to let someone pass at least this time. Someone's paying third round versus 20th round to take him, but won't be on my team. All totally fair points. You know, um, 
you usually don't profit by taking guys coming off of career years. Like you say, you know, I, I generally avoid them just on that because generally your career years are just that. Like if you look at your whole career as a spectrum and like, you know, each year on the spectrum, you've got your best year, you've got your worst year and then everywhere in between. So if this is all the way on the right side uh, towards like your best year uh, and you're paying for that, what are the odds that you're going to then get that the next year when you're paying for that cost? So um, yeah, probably, probably not. I, I mean, I definitely don't think anybody's under the illusion that he's going to have a two, eight, four ERA and a one Oh four whip again. Uh, I think that's pretty clearly going to be going up a bit. The thing I do like though, is going from Toronto to, to Seattle, he's going to a uh, team with uh, the best, or I guess the worst uh, park factor in, in baseball at 94 on Statcast, along with the giants and the A's um, in terms of most pitcher friendly. So I do think that he's going to a really nice place uh, for, for his, his skills, especially um, with, uh, with the fly balls that he gives up. I think it's going to be a boon to him. I think he's going to be plenty good still, uh, but I do agree, Jason. I, I just don't like the fact that I, it's, it's very easy for me to see that walk rate regressing somewhat significantly and, uh, and being an issue, but um, it wouldn't surprise me if he was still very, very good this year. Uh, I just think I'll probably be taking someone else anyhow. Yeah. I, I am not as out on him as I would think myself to have been, you know, I, I, I do think like you, Dave, I don't think he's going to be bad. I don't think he's going to regress like he did after the first breakout. I think, I mean, he, he clearly figured something out. This wasn't just a random pop-up. I don't think, I think the skills are really there. It's just a matter of, is he going to give you third round value or is he going to give you sixth or seventh round value? And I don't want to be in a position to have to make him my ACE. I would like to have a starter before I get to this point. So I don't have to make the decision and I can draft something else. Um, I don't think I'm not going to rule it out entirely, but it's probably a, an 85% cross off for me. This one I'm really interested in. I, I think this one can go either way. Yeah, with just about anybody. I mean, Tyler O'Neill at 44, right at the end of the third is, is gosh, he's just oozing with skills. I mean, he's fast, he's strong. He's uh, a, an amazing defender. I mean, he, he's, he Great hair. put it all together last year, despite the strikeout rate. I mean, the strikeout rate is the thing. Where do you fall on Tyler O'Neill, Jason? Is that a guy that you're going to be in on? Yeah, I'm going to be out on him. Um, again, I know he has lots of red on the StatCast page, incredible skills, but I just think you're paying a lot for those 15 stolen bases last year. You know, look at the prior three years, and I know he wasn't a full-time player, but he had six stolen bases over three years, 410 at-bats, six stolen bases. And with his skill set, the contact rate, the strikeout rate, I mean, you know, you know how this works with BAPUP. You have an unlucky year, you're hitting 220 all of a sudden. So, Again, if you look, if you removed his stolen bases for a moment, how would you evaluate this player? There's so many players with that skill set, high strikeouts, low average, tons yep. of power. So um, I'm out on him. And I had him last year. It was great. You got him cheap, you know, skilled player. He popped, but um, I'm not going to take him again. And again, I think he could very well put up that year for you, but you're really paying for the stolen bases. Yeah. I just think that there is so much uh, volatility in this profile and that, that strikeout rate being over 30% is just higher than I'm comfortable with. And, uh, you know, contact rate being under 70%, um, zone contact rate being under 80%. These are just all huge red flags for me. Um, super talented guy. I ended up taking him in the first pitch Arizona draft back in, uh, 
uh, October before I did any research on anything just because he had fallen to like the fifth round or whatever. Um, but yeah, moving forward, I don't see myself drafting any Tyler O'Neill. Honestly, it's just, it's not a profile I like to invest in. I, I want to guarantee myself production. I, I can take guys late who can have like, you know, there's that 5% chance that they can have that kind of season. Uh, and if they flop, they flop and then I can drop them. But with this, I just, I don't want to miss on an early pick like this. What do you guys say to the people that would say, well, you know, he performed despite the volatility and skills and hell, even his strikeout rate was still absurdly high last year. And still, I mean, there was tons of production. I mean, who, what do you say to people that, that think that he can just advance past that strikeout rate and always perform? I think you have to look at the range of outcomes. Um, again, in players with similar skill sets, I find that they're just, you know, to use the word that Dave just used, they're just very, very volatile. And I just can't get past the strikeout rate. I mean, you know, sometimes guys do make adjustments and improve there, but a lot of times it sticks with them for the rest of their career. Um, and again, I just look at that skill set, big power, low average. It is so many players. I mean, that, that those guys are almost free in our, our world for fantasy. So it's, to me, it's the stolen bases. That's, that's the name of the game. That's why everybody's on him, but you know, does St. Louis really want him being a, a stolen base guy or do they want him being a middle of the order the bopper? You know, I would think they want him to be more of a bopper. So um, I'm just not going to pay it. I mean, to me, the only way he comes close to where he's going right now is he actually steals those 15 bases. So uh, to me, he's a stat cast darling. He'll always go high. You know, we're not going to fade him by having negative comments here, but um, I'm out. So if anybody wants to take him, good luck. I hope you're in my league. Yeah, That's I think, fair. like you said, range of outcomes. He could easily have the year that a lot of people are, are hoping he'll have. Um, but I also know that he can have the year that we're afraid he can have. Uh, and that, that's really what it is. It's just how, you know, some players have very stable, you know, like Juan Soto, he's never going to have like a horrendous year. He, he has too stable of a skill, skill set. Uh, Tyler O'Neill has it within his range of outcomes to hit under 200. And uh, I mean, I know it was only 157 at bats in 2020, but that's exactly what happened. The, the Babbitt wasn't there. And if he gets into a slump, he's the kind of guy who, who can have prolonged slumps. And if he can't find himself, I can see the, the Cardinals sitting him um, probably not getting sent down, but it's a possibility. Uh, and, and, you know, our friend Zach Waxman also did his own research where he looked at all the hitters uh, against what he, he did his own report on like who he thinks are like the top, hundred pitchers. So he looked at all the hitters and their results against like the top hundred pitchers in, in baseball last year. I think it was and, 60, by the way, I think it was top oh, 60. 60. Yeah. Okay. Top 60 pitchers. Uh, and, and O'Neill's results were horrendous. I think he had like a 48% K rate. Um, I mean, so even last year when he produced, it was all against bad pitching when he faces bad pitching, he mashes, but what happens if he ends up playing more, you know, against better pitching next year, then, I think it could be a much bigger struggle for him. And I just, I don't like the probability of him having a horrible season. And let it be known his best month of the season by far was September of last year. Now, granted, it's not the expanded rosters like it used to be, but it's still, you know, teams that are out of it, uh, especially teams in division that are, t- I mean, that, that division was ass. So end of the year, you know, pirates are throwing crap out there. Oh yeah. Uh, he had, he had 11 bombs in September, 27 RBI four steel. I mean, he had 300 or 303. I mean, he, he killed it in September like that, that made his season so much more than it was. And it was good, but it wasn't, you know, third round good. Um, so yeah. who knows? I, you know, it, it's a guy that 
I would just just looked earlier in the draft season from October to the beginning of December, he was going at 52. So he's already climbed a half a round now that people are starting to draft in earnest these last three weeks. That's an interesting one to monitor because I mean, man, the, those uh, those counting stats are tantalizing. That's for sure. Um, it's it, there's a lot of debate for Tyler O'Neill. Uh, let's, let's wrap out, wrap out with one of your, uh, one of your Boston boys, Jason, Chris sale going at 49. Uh, are you in on the left-hander staying healthy and, and putting up a Chris sale season? Yeah, I, I'm in on him and I have a little bone to pick. I might've heard it on this podcast, but I heard someone lump in Chris sale with Jacob deGrom and I, I just could not disagree more with that comment. I mean, one guy has a torn UCL. The other player had the torn UCL went to visit his doctor, got it fixed and came back. So I think these two are apples and orange looking them like, like that. And last year, I, of course, was not on him. I will never take a picture first year back from Tommy John. It is so ugly. It is so awful. You know, we've learned that lesson plenty of times. So but looking, ba- looking back, I think based on how low my expectations are for players coming back year one, he actually wasn't that bad. I was impressed the velo came back for the most part. I know it wasn't vintage Chris Sale. The home runs were a little bit high. But again, he gets a mulligan for last year. He wasn't right in 2019. Again, doctors said he had, had a bionic elbow. Um, clearly needed Tommy John surgery. He doesn't have a tr- – this is obvious, was a major issue. His elbow, torn ACL, and he got it fixed. He doesn't have a track record of his uh, injuries besides that, though. I mean, I know we always looked at him at how skinny and we thought he would break down. So I, again, there's been plenty of success stories of second year back from Tommy John, plenty of success stories, first year back, very, very, very rare. So, you know, where I'm tempering expectations is on the innings. I don't think he's going to give you 200 innings, but I still think, you know, the Red Sox have a lot invested with him. They're going to let him go. We know how competitive he is. The guy cuts up jerseys if they don't fit right. So I, I think he's, I, I, I like it. I mean, I know this is a DC. It doesn't necessarily show my hand, but, you know, I practice what I preach. I took him into the third round in my current DC. So I like where his uh, value is. I do always, uh, you know, hate AL East pitchers. Unfortunately, the competition is so fierce besides the Yankees, which are a walkover. So that part I don't like, but Baltimore just got a little bit easier with their ballpark. So I like that for the Boston pitchers. So I'm in at this price. I don't see him. I don't look at him as an injury risk. You can say skills are declining. You can say this, you can say that, but I think it's very unfair to call him an injury risk today because he had the surgery and he came back from it. Um, I'm not sure if you heard that on this podcast. I It's, it's very possible in our earlier episodes, someone might've said that I, I know personally, I don't think I would have lumped him in with DeGrom because I definitely don't never had them on the same uh, level of risk, but um, actually, so just within the last uh, maybe week or two um, I've decided that I'm, I'm probably in on Chris sale this year uh, for a lot of the reasons you said, you know, like, I mean, he, he came back from Tommy John surgery and uh, you know, he should be ready to go this year. Um, There's, there shouldn't really be anything holding him back to, to eventually becoming himself again. And if I can get, something close to vintage Chris sale minus the innings uh, you know, from the uh, end of the third round or early fourth round, I think that that's a steal. Um, you know, he was uh, he was not always a 200 inning guy. I mean, he's, he has been for many years, but you know, he's more of a guy that I'm taking because he, he has huge strikeout potential uh, and should give you uh, pretty elite ratios to boot. So, and he's on a good offense 
Um, they don't have really have a good closer. Bullpen is a, is a bit sketchy, but uh, I still expect them to get a good amount of wins this year. And uh, I think it would just be a roster construction thing for me, where if I took sale in the third or fourth, I would make sure that either the pitcher that I took before or after him that I'd be pairing him with wouldn't be that type of guy. I would want someone who would be more, someone I could more depend on like getting 200 innings from or try to uh, someone who is a little bit more, uh, more steady in that. But I think, I think he's uh, I think he's a, a fine pick for where he's going. Honestly, I, I was a little surprised myself when I decided to be in on him a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Things looked pretty solid last year. The Vila was almost Chris Sale Velo. I, I think I want to see him throwing or sitting 94, 95 in spring instead of 93, 94. I want to, I want to get a little more bump up, but you know, his BABIP, BABIP was sky high last year. So a lot of, a lot of the negative was BABIP driven. I think it was like a 360 BABIP, 358 BABIP last year when he came back. His off speed uh, and, pitches were a little flat. Yeah. Um, right. And that, and that's, normal. Weren't, weren't that's normal. Else. You yeah, know, the, exactly. the control is the tr- control is going to be a little off, you know, that that's just how it goes when you're coming back from TJ uh, strikeout rate was down a little bit. Swinging strike rate was down a little bit, but like you said, the off speed pitches need to come back. That snap on the slider needs to come back. Um, so yeah, I, I'm watching sale and spring. I am not drafting him yet. I did not draft him yet, but I think there's a lot of room for him to, perform at an almost first round level. Um, so I, I think I will be in as long as I see the velo go up just a hair more uh, like that. Babbitt was so bad last year. And even so still had a, you know, he had a 316 ERA and a 344 Sierra. Um, and the K rate was still almost 30%. So, you know, he, he looked like he was close. So uh, he's getting older, but you know, I, I don't mind. And you and mentioned the AL East. I, I don't mind lefties as much in the AL East. Um, you know, I, the, a lot of the bad, uh, dimensions favor the, uh, left-handed hitters against right-handed pitching. So I, I, I tend to like lefties more in the AL than East than the righties. And I, uh, I think the strikeout rate being down also, I mean, in addition to him coming back from, from TJ, uh, it looks like, you know, he threw the highest forcing fastball percentage of his career last year at 47.3%. And he cut out the the two seam fastball, but you know when you're throwing your fastball more than your than your off speed pitches, I think that's going to have a negative effect on your on your uh, swinging strikes and and strikeouts in general. So I would expect if once he once he learns to trust his his off speed pitches, his change and his slider again, I think he'll be I think he'll be back to being Chris Sale. That tracks. Um, all right, man, th- this has been a great show, Jason. We we were really thrilled to have you on because. Your perspective is not one that you're going to find on podcasts. I mean, the majority of people on pods, you know, they're playing in the main event. Yeah, like we do, but they're not playing the big leagues as extensively as you are. Most people that are playing in your echelon are not willing to come on any shows at all. You know, even the people we've mentioned before, you know, the, the, the geckos, the cerebros, the, the fills, they're not quite playing the leagues that you're playing in as, as frequently. So uh, it, it's been really great for us to have you on, uh, to give your insight. Cause it, frankly, I, you know, I was really excited to hear all the things you had to say, cause I have never talked to somebody really that plays the type of leagues that you're high, that you high have. stakes heat. Yeah. The highest stakes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> high stakes so, heat. Right. Yeah. We we're the high <laughs> stakes, but you're the highest stakes. Yeah. No, we, it was, we, yeah, every, it was really, um, this was such a great conversation with you because it just, it felt like we were all on the same page with things, but yet I was still 
able to learn things from you. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of good takeaways from this one. So I, I'm so glad that you wanted to, to come on with short notice and everything. And you were so easy about it. You're just like, yeah, whenever you guys want to record, I'm good. You know, it's easiest, easiest guest we've ever had on and um, definitely one of the best. Yeah, thanks, guys. No, uh, great to be on. Always great to talk this level of fantasy baseball. You know, I don't have a lot of friends <laughs> that you can have these types of conversations with. So uh, a lot of like-minded people. And uh, I learned from you guys, as I say, keep it up. Uh, look forward to uh, seeing you in Vegas. Absolutely. Thanks, uh, we can find you on Twitter at Papplebeast, correct? Like Papple You can Bond find me the there. And you can also find me in Cooperstown for Big Poppy's induction come July. First ballot. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Meet Jason in Cooperstown. Um, thank you, everybody, for supporting the show. Uh, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe and review. Um, we're, we're inching closer to 50 reviews. And I, and I failed to mention the last couple episodes. We, we did pass 10,000 listens. You know, for a pod that doesn't have 30, uh, 30 episodes out yet, uh, it's, that's not too shabby. So we really appreciate that very much. Thank you for sticking with us and uh, continuing to download. You know, the, the season's ramping up and we're, we're seeing our listens go up as, as the, we're inching closer to March. So we thank you very much for that. Uh, you can check out our merch at rotosaurus.com slash merch. Uh, Dave, you have like 6 billion pods in the next two weeks. I know I'm on one of them with you. The, we're on the SP streamer together, I think next, next Wednesday. Wednesday. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Then I'm on uh, <clears throat> RotoWire with uh, Toby Batflip Crazy on uh, the next day on Thursday. And I'll obviously be recording with you on Thursday. And yep. then I'll be recording with Justin on Tuesday on Friends with Fantasy Benefits. I'm doing the Fantasy Tool Shed with uh, Chris Clegg and Eric Cross and also Justin Mason on uh, Sunday the 23rd. And then I'll also be going on that week with uh, Kev, uh, Rotosurgeon, oh, with man. the operating table. So, yeah, a whole lot. And then someone else asked me, too, and I was just like, I'm going to need to <laughs> get back to you. There's we got to go on with Waxman, too. We <laughs> yeah, to that, that's man. the other one. Yeah, Zach Waxman, we got to go on Draft Champions uh, pod at some point, too. So, oh, boy. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of uh, a lot of podcasting in the next two weeks. Uh, well, so check Dave's Twitter at run dmcd add that d for all of the updates of of all the shows that he's going to be on because you probably didn't write it down right now and all the degrom hate mail from this episode (laughs) yeah you you should start sharing the dms (laughs) you can again you can find jason at papple beast we want to thank jason dupont for joining us on the show check him out in new york city and las vegas come up and say hi to him because if if this show is any indication he's more than happy to talk to you he's an affable guy And you can find me at The Dustmate on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we're going to talk to you guys next week.